Hey, race fans, Hall of Famer Daryl Waltrip here. You know, it's time to drop the green flag on another edition of Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator, powered by Pacematic. So, hey, pull those belts tight one more time. Here's my buddy Hermie Sadler and Senator Bill Stanley. Boogity, boogity, boogity. Let's see what they have to say, boys and girls. I'm Virginia State Senator Bill Stanley, and I'm Leaning Right. I'm former NASCAR driver and Fox Sports analyst Hermie Sadler, and I am turning left, leaning right and turning left with Sadler and the Senator is powered by Pacemat. Senator? How are you, sir? I'm great. How are you? Good. We are here today again in the SLG Stanley Law Group studios, high atop the Stanley Law Group skyscraper in beautiful downtown Richmond, the capital of the Commonwealth, recording right here. We're going to have some special guests here today, but it's always good to be in Richmond taping uh, with you in person i always like that better than sometimes when we do it by zoom kind of thing but um but uh i've had a good week i'm i'm glad we got through the governor's uh, budget amendments and uh, that was a long day for eight hours and as we cascade into this week i think what we're seeing is kind of a lot of hypocrisy continuing not on the state level but on the federal level you know we've got these jan 6 um, hearings that are going on for a riot a bunch of knuckleheads climbed a fence got into the capitol um, but what I'm seeing is we've seen 40, 50 pregnancy centers being attacked by pro-abortion activists not being prosecuted. We have rioters that try to burn down a federal building and burn up the federal agents inside. Meh, their charges are dismissed. So I'm not really that happy is, with is our this your Is this your leaning right moment? No, no. I just because if you're going to do that, you need to mention your sponsor. Yeah, well, you asked me how I was doing it. I'm just telling you. I'm a little pissed off oh, about okay. it. Okay. So, you know, that stuff is kind of going on right now in, in our world. And, and quite frankly... We are here on Tuesday, which this podcast will drop on Thursday, and we've got some very important primary races going on in the Commonwealth of Virginia. We're going to talk about those. It may have a huge impact on changing the mindset, the body politic of our federal government and Congress. And so this is an important day. This is an important day for liberty. Uh, this is an important day for Virginia, and I hope everybody's getting out there, has already gone out there and voted, and we've got two great candidates that are going to be two really bad Democrats that represent us in Congress. So typically when we start the podcast, we'll do a leaning right moment, then a turning left moment. But you mentioned we have guests. We do. Who we'll get to the intro in just a moment. That'll be our leaning right moment, just the whole conversation that we'll have with our special guest today. Now, on the turning left moment, I will say this. I'm going to skip my turning left moment this week because I want this show to be about our guest and our conversation. We've got a lot to talk about. That I think will be very entertaining. But I will say this. I think by next week, I'll be ready to announce my presenting sponsor of my turning left moment. I have spent hour on top of hour on top of hour Whining, dining, schmoozing, you name it, our new primary sponsor for my turning left moment. But I think by next week I'll be ready to announce. I can't wait, but uh, who knows if you're ever going to land the plane on this one. I'm going to <laughs> land more than just a plane. Sounds like he's going to plow the field. Well, and you're going to like it. I, you know, I mean, he's got his hands this far apart like he just – like he's trying to land at about a 10 foot bass. I'd land at what I refer to as the mother load on this one. Is that right? Yeah. Well, you know, keep hearing it. But, you know, my Leaning Right moments are sponsored. And so since we're going to go into a Leaning Right moment uh, pretty much for this whole podcast, my Leaning Right moment has always been sponsored by, since 
almost the very beginning of this podcast by Charlie's Waterfront Cafe in beautiful downtown Farmville, Farm Vegas, Virginia, right next to the Greenfront Furniture Store, uh, right there uh, near the Appomattox Creek or River. I can't tell. Um, I used to bring the 5th District uh, Republican Committee there because they have a great, huge meeting hall where you can have great meetings. But they had great food, great drink, a great bar atmosphere. You can eat indoor, outdoor. And you can also get down to the tasting cellar and get a fine wine made in Virginia. And they have a great menu there as well. Owned by my old roommate from Hamden, Sydney, Tom Graziano, one of my great friends, and a proud and loyal sponsor who has been there almost since the beginning for my Leaning Right moment. So this Leaning Right moment, which will probably encompass the whole show, is brought to you by Tom Graziano and Charlie's Waterfront Cafe in Farmville, Virginia. You want to introduce? Oh, and that's why we're not having a, a turning left moment because you got no sponsor. You got nothing. Got you just nothing. wait. You just wait. You got nothing. You just wait. Zippy. I mean, here we go again. I mean, you used to have cars with sponsors all over, stickers, big, huge sponsors, DeWalt. Keep I mean, talking. You can't even land a sponsor. Keep talking. Yeah, I'm challenging you on this one. I, I don't he normally comes gonna... through. Shep Moss is back with us he this week, Shep. Senator. Uh, Councilman Thank you. Shep Moss. Thank you so a much. Member of Town Council, South Hill, Virginia. Exposing the burning piles all around his district. It's a lot of fires. Uh, and, and that's great, too, because, you know, what we're talking about today, I think, is really an important thing. We talk a lot about politics. We talk about local government when Shep is on. We talk about state politics a lot since we're, you know, right out this window here is the garage where all the state politicians park their cars in the Supreme Court. And one block over is our beautiful capital, where I'm honored to serve in the 20th district. But today... I think, and this is very important, and we talked about this in a previous podcast, I think it's important for our listeners to really kind of take in, we talk about getting involved in politics at the grassroots level. We talk about being active uh, for someone who's running for office, but maybe we ought to have a primer on what it takes to run for office in the Commonwealth of Virginia, whether it's a town council, board of supervisors, House of Delegates, state senate, even Congress, and we've got those congressional uh, primaries going on right now, and so... We went out to try to get some top-tier talent, people that know exactly what's going on and can tell us, so you want to be a candidate, how do you be a candidate? And we've even talked about you potentially being a candidate for the 17th Senate District there, Hermie. So we went out and tried to get that top talent. They couldn't come. So we've got <laughs> replacements. Yeah. So, and you know, and, and you know, my Rolodex is not like yours. Mine's a pamphlet. Yours is, looks like a Ferris wheel. But, um, but right now we have, I think, two very important people nonetheless. Uh, one that I'm going to introduce first uh, is a friend of mine who basically uh, maybe didn't talk me into running for Franklin County uh, Committee Chairman way back in 2007. However, uh, I got to meet him in a court case, well, kind of a court case, an impeachment of the RPV chairman, Jeff Fredericks. Uh, met him on a lark uh, getting ready for a court case that I was doing with A.J. Dudley, who's now judge, believe it or not. I know. Some people go on to greatness. I'm here doing a freaking podcast with Shorty over here. Um, and quite frankly, became instant friends. We, 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 uh, we really bonded together. His name is Jeff Ryer. He used to work for the Republican Party of Virginia. Currently is our comms director, basically our minister of information uh, and propaganda for the Republican Senate Republican Caucus. Uh, used to work for Morgan Griffith, uh, was his chief over there in the House of Delegates when Morgan Griffith was the majority leader in the House before he moved on to Congress. Uh, Morgan swears by him, loves him to death. So does his wife, who is also a judge. She just <laughs> loves Jeff Ryer. 
And Jeff Fryer got me into politics, I'm going to tell you, before we introduce our second guest. Um, by when I represented Jeff Fredericks, we lost that he was in, he was removed from office by one. They vote. cheated. They cheated. They cheated che- to totally remove him. Cheated. They cheated. So then on Easter, I, I, I get a call from Jeff Fredericks. He says, hey, I'm in your neighborhood. Do you mind if I stop by? I'm like, it's Easter, but okay, come on. He came to the lake. Uh, I was a single man at the time, so I like, had kids and Easter eggs uh, to hide. And um, he said, hey, who's going to, you know, uh, the election now is coming up for RPV chairman, which is a big deal. Big job, and I'm just a unit chairman. And he said, uh, "Why not? Why don't you run for it?" And I was like, "You got to be nuts." Well, a couple cocktails later, I, I, he talked me into it. Uh, we had a 90-day run, got about 42 percent of the vote in the convention. It was when Bob McDonald was nominated for governor, um, and Ken Cuccinelli and Bill Bowling. Mm-hmm. It was in Richmond. It was packed. Um, they even cheated there. They I did. mean, we we went around. We had a hell of a campaign. First thing I'd ever done statewide, and um, they turned off my teleprompter with yep. my speech on it about 15 seconds in, didn't they? Yep. And um, and I'll never forget. There was another candidate for attorney general. I won't say his name, but he we're in the back in the back hall, and he grabs me by the shoulders. He's a big guy and go. They're cheating. They're <laughs> screwing us. Don't you see it? And I'm just like. I'm so terrified. I just want to get the hell out of here. I don't care. And he's, you're screwing you and me. And um, But Jeff Ryer was a great support there. And then he got, you know, how you get me all pumped up. He got me all fired up because the 5th District Chairman at the time was also behind the steel. Mm-hmm. And so I turned and then ran, ran for 5th District Chairman, uh, which is the Congressional District. And, uh, and Jeff Ryer helped me, and we got elected. And then... Then I helped Robert Hurt beat Tom Perriello when I was 5th District Chairman. And the person that comes to me and immediately says, because it's a special election, you need to run for state senate. I never even thought about that. Uh, Virgil Goode was the other one, but Jeff Fryer. And then he ran my campaign, a short, truncated campaign. Was sworn in uh, the day General Assembly started in 2011. Yep. Jeff has been there ever since. And so when Jeff came over to the, uh, to the Republican caucus, it was like having your bestie. Uh, your best friend uh, there, and he always gives us such good and sage advice, especially uh, me, who sometimes I can fly off the handle and be the radical, uh, wanting to burn the village down, shoot a hostage. And Excitable he always, boy. He, he always has a better way. So welcome, Jeff Ryer. Welcome to the program. Glad to be here. I did For those of you at home, in case you're wondering what this is like, let me take you back to your childhood. It's 7 o'clock on a Saturday night, and your parents are going to make you watch Hee Haw. <laughs> And that really is the experience that you're that you're having right now because wow. this this has a very a very Buck Owens kind of feel to it. Um, well, at least it's not Lawrence Welk. Nevertheless, okay. well, that, that was, was the worse. option at seven, Saturday at seven. It was yeah. Lawrence Welk or or you know or or Hee Haw. Yeah. And if you were lucky enough to uh, be with your parents as opposed to your grandparents, you would you would get Hee Haw. And uh, that, that was exactly true. That, that, that's exactly that's, uh, yeah. you're a little young to understand this, Mr. Nunnkamp, but yeah. that, that's and what life was like in the dark days of the 1970s when you were when I was a, a child. And Jeff, Jeff has brought a sidekick, a number two, but not just any number two. He is currently the executive director of the Republican Party of Virginia, which makes him number one in his world. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, he's the one that keeps the lights world. on at uh, at RPV, as we like to call it. Ken Nunnenkamp. Have I said that right? Yes. Did you ever get teased about your last name when you were a kid? All the time. Like, no one's yeah. in camp. Mm-hmm. Who's going to camp? Summer yeah. camp. That kind I've of heard stuff. them all. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, Ken, tell us a little bit about yourself. I've I've said 
a little bit about Jeff. And Jeff, you can circle back and fill in anything you want to talk about yourself about before we dive into really what's really important about this podcast. Just in my defense, very few spouses of candidates like the people who make the candidates run. Anyway. Um, <laughs> my wife loves you. Just wanted to say that. My wife loves you. She's one of the few. I, I must now, say, maybe, one of, maybe one, the judge. What are the few? I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm one of the judges' favorites. Um, uh, there's, uh, there's a long line of spouses. But the congressman loves you too. That that have uh, pictures of me with, uh, you know, darts through them and things like that. Yeah, so, well, yeah. you know, because you're very demanding. I mean, you've run races. You know how to win races. That's why you're here today, Ken. What exactly do you do as executive director for the Republican Party of Virginia? Oh boy, yeah, that's a good question. I'm still figuring it out myself here. Uh, but uh, just a little about my background. Uh, I've been doing this for about 12 years. Uh, born and raised in Virginia, and um, lived pretty much all over except for the beach. Uh, came from Northern Virginia down to Roanoke, Culpeper, Saltville, and uh, back to Richmond now. And um, yeah, I worked for about six or seven years on campaigns. Uh, did a little turn at the RNC. And uh, ended up on Governor Yunkin's campaign, and uh, now we're here. Oh, so you're the choice, the chosen one. So what other campaigns be- be- uh, before Yunkin's? Did oh, you, uh, you said Saltville, didn't you? Yeah, well, I have family down in Saltville, so I haven't worked down there. But uh, but we've done a couple a uh, couple all over, a couple congressionals. Uh, worked, spent a couple years working for Barbara Comstock up there. That was probably my longest stint. Um, Congresswoman. Congressman Comstock, yep. Before Northern uh, Virginia turned blue. Yes. I was there uh, right up until it turned blue, yeah. left in 2017. Listen, I was raised yeah. up there. It was red for a long time when I was oh, growing yeah. up. Bob yeah. McDonald won Fairfax County. Big mm-hmm. time. Yeah. yeah. It was 2009. So how'd you get hooked up with Youngkin? Uh, so I left the RNC uh, after the 2020 election and uh, moved out to Culpeper, and uh, there was a number of candidates running. And um, at the time, I said, uh, I think, uh, think it might take a little break. And about two weeks later, I said, I think I'm going to go on to a campaign again. So it was a nice long break. So usually, you know, when you get into the political world, is this what you set out to do when you said, hey, I'm going to go to college, I'm going to work in political campaigns and, and starve for three or four months out of the year and work 20 hours a day? I mean, what, what got you into politics? Mm, yeah, it was uh, it was a bit bit random. Uh, my neighbor ran for state senate in 2011. Actually, I think you might know her. Right, she's uh, no up <laughs> yeah, all the way up there. She's, uh, the, she's the... <laughs> Um, she is the Secretary of Commerce now, Karen Merrick. Karen Merrick. She ran for oh. state senate in 2011. She was, she was our, uh, yeah. one of our nominees mm-hmm. the year, uh, uh, the year of your first reelect, 2011. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And she, uh, uh, so she was good friends with the family, and so uh, they said, "Hey, do you want to come work on the campaign for the summer, maybe through the fall?" And I said, "Sure, that sounds like fun." It's going to be a kid great at the time. time. I mean, yeah, kind of opened up, and then I blinked, well, and uh, now I'm here. So. Wow. And so, what did you do exactly at the? RNC Republican National Committee. So I worked in uh, in their data department, uh, running numbers. Um, was their director of uh, voter contact and turnout, and uh, we had a lot of fun. Went around, uh, went around making custom lists for candidates. And so it's a, it's a lot more interesting than it sounds. But I know it sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah that sounds compelling. <laughs> yeah. Jeff, you've worked on a number of campaigns. What are the ones that you've done before? Yes, I. I have. mean, I'm trying to establish some credibility since the top tier guys couldn't be here today. I yes, I understand. I understand, understand that, that you brought in the C team. I'm used to this. Right. I'm, you know, basically on this particular broadcast, I'm like Regis. You know, everybody else canceled. So at the last minute, you know, like Letterman, you called Regis in. And, See, he's not know, a smart ass at all. You don't have they, to worry about that. That, that works out fine. Uh, what you want to know? What campaigns I've worked yeah. on? All of them. I, it's it's tireless. It's an exhaustive list. Yeah. I mean, I'm. Uh, well, give me some of the highlights. 
I talked about Morgan. I talked about electing, your best electing the, the local ever head of the Christian coalition to be mayor of Roanoke. That was kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, uh, and Smith. and and on to the state senate after that for 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 two terms. Ralph Smith was a true rebel. Right, he was. I mean, he, he was one of a kind. They used to call him Rib Rocked. Right, rock Ralph Rock Saw. Yeah, Rock Saw. Oh my lord. Yeah. Uh, Ralph was. Uh, Ralph still is because he's still around. He is is special to say the least. Now look, Ralph Smith was a mechanic. Never yep. went to college or yep. anything, but invented the extension of the trailer hitch. Yep. Patented it. Patented it. And became a multimillionaire. And if you go to Roanoke and you look at the star, you know, there's a lit up star at night. Right below it, about halfway down, is a is a mansion called Rockledge. Yep. And he built that. No, he bought it. Oh, bought it's it. a railroad mansion. And if you ever get the privilege of going inside of it, the floors alone are just incredible. And you don't you know, go into a home, oh, you notice the floors. It's difficult to miss it when there's hand inlaid wood uh, in uh, to create lovely little patterns, et cetera. It is spectacular. Dr. And Dye lives there now. Dr. Dye lives there She's now. She's with the administration. Yeah. Yes. And that was uh, that was Ralph's. And he uh, he is the last Republican elected mayor of Roanoke. Um, yeah. we haven't we haven't had one since. Nobody's called to ask me to help, that's why. And, um, you know, if they did, I'm sure they would have had a solid succession of Republican mayors in Roanoke. Um, Otherwise, I mean, you name it. I mean, congressional campaigns. uh, I I was actually Tom Bliley's last campaign manager for his last race, which is kind of weird. Um, I'm trying to think of all of them. A lot of just a tremendous number of local races. Everything from uh, Board of Supervisors and City Council uh, all the way to congressional races and stuff like that, and uh, strictly Virginia. And at at one time, I actually did a student council race for somebody. <laughs> I, I did for real. I did actually did. I actually, and he's he's on state central now. Really, he's on the state central committee of the Republican Party of Virginia. You know, yeah, he won. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it's it's Cliff. And it, 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 you it, were in the party too, though, weren't you? In RPV? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was. Yeah, uh, I was convention director for the party uh, in uh, in the uh, mid '90s. Did the '96 convention both here in the state and uh, took them to San Diego. Uh, those were heady times. George Allen was governor. Jim Gilmore was attorney general. We were, you know, poised to be to become uh, at that time anyway a pretty pretty strong uh, strong party. And I don't want to dictate uh, and Chairman Randy Forbes. Future oh, congressman, was yeah. they? Yeah, no, I don't mean to dominate, but uh, Hermie did in the last, you know, couple podcasts. So I'm going to try to step up here. And, well, I, I actually, I have a question for you because sure. you, the whole thing is, let me see, it's it's leaning right, turning left. Okay, now this is this is strictly a rhetorical question that I've always wondered. If NASCAR was like the NFL and trying to branch itself out into foreign countries, and they decided to go to Britain. Would they turn right? That's hermitology. I mean, seriously, would they? Would they? Would they? Would they turn right? Um, well, we we turn right a little bit on road courses, mm-hmm. but in most cases, if I'm turning right, mm-hmm. the next thing I hear in my ear is, "Are you okay?" Aha, uh-huh. okay, because <laughs> that means I've bagged it into the fence. So that is not good. So I try not to think about. I like. I also like Bill and leaning right, but in racing terms, 
You have to turn left. I have huh? to turn left. So even if NASCAR goes to Britain, then they're not going to go on the other side and go right. Okay. No, well, that, that answers that rhetorical question. I've wondered that for years. Do they even have an oval track in Britain? Do you know? I do not. Hmm. I'm from Emporia, remember? That's true. <laughs> have you ever been to England? No. Me neither. You've never been to England? I've never been to New England. Well, I grew up there. I yeah. can tell you all about oh, it. Jesus. I mean, total Patriots fan. So, so let's talk a little bit. You two guys were intimately involved. Um, well, not. No, I, I wouldn't describe our relationship in that way. <laughs> You're in, in, involved in the race to get Glenn, Glenn Youngkin. Uh, <laughs> oh, they invited a couple. There's a long pause. Yeah, yeah. he's a professional this broadcaster. Can't part. you tell? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nice. I knew this was a Oh, my God. They have a poster. Look at so, that. Now, now you're leaning way left. I'm, <laughs> I'm just noticing this. You, so, you have a logo and a poster? Yeah. Where else is this poster? Um, there's one in the back of my car. Uh, <laughs> do, you, do you have it taped in a window like it would be if you were like trying to sell no, your car? Yet. Is it? No. But we're going to have a, just like those uh, magnets for the refrigerator for Stanley yeah. Law Group that you picked up one. We'll yeah. have for these uh, coming up soon. You should get a decal. It would be like those those ones when you get in behind the SUV and it says RIP and the you know the person's name is there and it's with the angels and everything. You should get a decal like that. That'd be cool. Yeah, you know, a little white on the on the back. All right, everybody. Thank Does you that for listening mean the podcast? to Lean Right and Turning Left. <laughs> is he saying the podcast time. has died? Uh, <laughs> no, no, not yet. This is what you get with Jeff Rock. However, so. the view we have, so you'll know, in the front, there's a parking garage, and in the back, there's a parking lot. So this is lap of luxury here. It, this, uh, it is. You and know, it, I and pick the best places. The Actually, most, the, the the view in the back is the last house that Robert yes. E. Lee lived in after the war. I know. I asked we why we couldn't go there. They had a porch. I could just step outside and have a cigarette, as opposed to have to walk down that, well, that treacherous flight of stairs. I was thing, but it was just a little, in terms of the upkeep, it was a little too much for my budget. Mrs. Lee's place was a little, oh, little much yeah, for you. that thing was falling apart. Um, yeah, they had to invest a lot of money to get it right. Anyway, um, talk to me a little bit, Ken, about, you know, you get involved in Youngkin's campaign. Mm-hmm. We had suffered terrible losses in the Commonwealth yeah. of Virginia. We'd lost a majority <laughs> over time that was at what point? What, 65, 66? Yeah. 66. 66 in the House of Delegates, yeah. in 100 member uh, House of Delegates. We were always 21-19, teetering 20-20. That seemed to be the way the Senate was. But we got swept out. Democrats come in, control all branches of the government. They, they, Attorney General's office, Lieutenant Governor, Governor, and then and now the House. And then at one point for two years, we had the Senate in control of the Democrats. I've equated that that result as a, uh, on their part, a political jewelry store smashing grab, where when they got in, they popped the top of the jewelry store counter and started grabbing the jewels until the alarms went off. But those alarms went off, and things changed in Virginia. Gentlemen, what precipitated those changes? Oh. You want to start? Do you want me to start? You go ahead. Okay. Um, A change in the entire American electorate that can best be examined in the 2016 election, where something happened that had never happened before. And in the 2016 uh, presidential election, for the very first time in uh, every single state that held a Senate race, voted exactly for the same party that they did in the presidential race. And what 2016 was, was the culmination of straight party ticket voting that we haven't hadn't seen in full force for more than a century. It really dates back to the to the late 19th century. And when you get to 2016, you see the 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 full force of it. In fact, it there was almost a replica of it in 2020. There was one exception. Susan Collins managed to prevail in Maine. But otherwise, what's happening now is as voters are going into a voting booth, 
they're picking a party and they are not wavering. And Why is that? that is the case up and down. Is it polarization? No, I think it's it's self-sorting more than anything else. I think people have decided uh, with uh, which party they most align and they vote accordingly. And uh, that's why you end up getting the, the results that you do. And it's just very rare to see a split uh, when you get down. And that used to be very, very common. And when you look at the 2017 House of Delegates races, when they went into it with 60 plus and came out of it with uh, 51 and only got the 51st seat because of a coin flip, the thing that was most remarkable about that was that um, the Democrats didn't flip any districts that Trump had carried. They only flipped Mm -hmm. districts that Hillary Clinton had carried. Again, the straight ticket voting aligning itself. And you can see it in this most recent election here in Virginia, where look at how little disparity there is between the margins won by Glenn Youngkin, Winsome Sears, and Jason Meares. So what that means is, is what we think of as, what we used to think of as a swing voter was somebody who picked and chose as they went down and made decisions accordingly. That's not the case anymore. Just about everybody is picking before they go in which side they're with and they're sticking with that side the whole way down. And those that are that are moving their votes from one side to the other is a very small percentage of the electorate. And you can see that as well in the in the House of Delegates races and why they were able to flip it back. So it's really more of a, of a party alignment. People are picking a team. Look at it like you would, um, I don't know, Red Sox versus Yankees. You know, people that support the Red Sox are just not going to root for the Yankees to win. Yeah, but see if, you know, the one time I went to a Jets-Redskin game, the, mm-hmm. uh, Nobody cares the, Jets, about the Jets home field. I know, but the Redskins are playing. I had tickets. I wore a Jets jersey because I didn't want my ass kicked. I'm just telling you that. I'm just throwing that out there. Wait a minute. You, you, were, you, went, to the, you went to the Meadowlands to see the game? Yeah. When the Jets were playing there, yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. When, I go to, uh, when I go to Camden Yards... I got three tickets. But, but you know what? Chief Z... Who is this African American yeah. gentleman that wore the headdress? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got, got his arm broke there when they were playing the Jets. Right? Really, the Giants. I mean, the, they were throwing snowballs at the referees, knocking them out. So I went incognito. Nobody touched me. <laughs> and then when the Redskins beat them that day, and I'd go, yeah, really, nobody knew. And like, oh. and wow. So they go, I had a, a Redskin T-shirt on underneath, which you know, as soon as I got to the car and was safely out of the harm's way of the Jets fans, I took the Jets jersey off and. You're so, just, so you're so brave. I'm just showing you an example where sometimes, yeah. you know. But anyway, that was the my explanation. It's Ken's turn. He hasn't had very much talk, chance to, to talk. And, <laughs> and, and, no, I'm just enjoying the story. I, I, level. What were you doing for Yunkin? Uh, so I was his data guy, data guy back then, um, his, his data director, and we looked at a lot of different things. I mean, you know. It's it's interesting. I mean, I don't disagree that we've got a lot of polarization here. Um, I think the new swing voter is uh, swing on turnout. It's a question of whether or not they're going to show up and vote. So, you know, last year I think it started right. Started right from the very beginning. Seven people sitting in a room, uh, looking around, going, "How how are we going to do this?" Um, and it and it uh, it started small. We we went on the road. To Roanoke, we went to the Texas Tavern, and there were uh, about probably about six people showed up. Seven people showed up. Everybody remembers the Chesterfield Rally right at the end. We had what, two, three thousand people right. there. You know, crowds and the music and the stage, and it was great. But but in the beginning, it was six people, and uh, and I think 
you know, we all followed uh, now Governor Youngkin's lead at the time, but but uh, the truth is we knew everybody was fed up. That was the big thing we knew. <clears throat> and I think that, that stemmed from the last three years or so. People were mad. And uh, what we didn't really know is what they were mad about. And uh, there's a lot of assumptions we always make, right? We, we can start at the top and, you know, you they throw out the words like, how do you feel about the economy? Well, I don't think a lot of people uh, have very strong thoughts on the economy in general. They care about different things. Right now, look at what's happening with gas prices. Uh, the uh, And you got the White House right now saying, oh, we get it. We get it. That's their response to gas prices. A little bit out of touch, in my opinion. But when, uh, when Governor Youngkin went on the road, sat down with six people at Texas Tavern and, you know, asked them questions. What's important to you? What are you hearing? What do you care about? And I think that was kind of the big turning moment for us is, is uh, and, and not just the governor, but also all of our folks running, uh, running for state delegate, running at the local level, is our people went out and listened. And they sat down and they said, look, we, we know everyone's fed up right now. We know people are unhappy. It's real easy to say people are unhappy with schools. Uh, it, it's harder to say, why are you unhappy with schools? You know, last year was a fantastic year, but I think it's because it started with us going out and saying, what makes you unhappy, right? What are the things you want to see fixed? And I remember uh, nine years ago, I was working on a delegate race uh, up in Northern Virginia, and I was, I was going door to door, and at every door I would give this same pitch, and I'd see people's eyes glaze over. You know, I'd talk about, well, we're doing this with the school budget. We're doing that with they Nobody nobody was paying attention to me at the doors. So I went to one door, and I knocked, and I said, hey, what, I'm working for your local state delegate. She's running for re-election. What, what's bothering you? And what are the things you care about? And the guy said to me, he said, I get this tree has knocked down a power line and uh, or a telephone line. So I hadn't had phone service, but the thing is blocking me getting out of my driveway. I haven't been able to go to work for three days. And uh, I came, this is 2013, said I can't get anybody on the phone to fix it. That would be aggravating. Yeah, it, incredibly for him. So we we stepped back and uh, pulled on my phone and I, I called, uh, called the woman I was working for and I said, hey, this, this guy lives at this address and he is having this issue. Can we do something? Call to VDOT. Same day, got fixed. Uh, it was. A, it turned out it was a health hazard. So uh, he just hadn't. He hadn't gone through the right channels. But that. That's not his fault. And, um, you know, and a lot of time they just don't know where to go, and that's why they call you. Exactly. Right? You know, that's yeah. why they call Brad Tuesday over here because you know. Um, yeah. They don't know who else to turn to. Sometimes yeah. we can do something. Sometimes we can't. Is that his yeah. radio important. alias? Yeah. So yeah. So <laughs> we don't go by our real names. Just like Limbaugh's <laughs> show, where all the staffers go by a different name so they can't be yeah. recognized in no, public. My, my staff that... at the law firm, they always say, "I hate Monday," and Aww. Monday, and then I didn't want him to feel, uh, you know, that's so like, sad. Get a complex. So then, then he has this alter ego named Brad Tuesday, and so when something gets screwed up, Brad Tuesday's at the helm. So. That wow. way, with Brad, it's always a different thing. Okay. So, all right. Don't worry, yeah. it's inside. Okay. So, all right. All right. So, so, sorry, Ken. No, you're good. You're all, all good. Um, uh, and so I got a. Uh, I, we were we were out working, and I, I I think I posted something on Facebook about you know uh, the governor, and uh, I got a call last year from that same guy who lives up in Northern Virginia, and he said I'm. Super excited to come out and vote for Governor Youngkin, nice or uh, then time Glenn Youngkin, and I said that's great. Uh, what's uh, you know? It's, it's been about nine years <laughs> since I've heard from you. Well, it turned out since that year he had voted every single year in every single election. Before that, he had voted once every four years for president, uh, and I don't think he was voting with us back then. But that was that that long-winded story was kind of the point. Is is 
you, you go out and you talk to people and you figure out what's what they need fixed and then uh, or what's important to them or what's bothering them and uh, and and then you get down to it and and I think that's that's how it happened. the the other The other thing that we did last year, I think we did this well. I mean, I'm not not tooting our own horns here, but you know, when when we when we work as a team uh, in Virginia, I think we get great results, and that's what we did last year. We were and we were all on all of us who were on the governor's campaign were constantly checking in with the folks running for delegate, talking to the people running for council sitting down with people and saying, okay, this is, you know, this is our plan. I mean, we sat down with every single unit chair in two weeks. We did most of it over Zoom, but uh, yeah, 126 meetings at the time in, in two weeks, talking about their county, bringing lessons back to us, but also telling them what we were going to do. And, uh, and I, I think I think when you listen to people, you get results. You know, I've been to a lot of uh, campaign events, not just my own, but, but for other people that have run for governor and I mean, the excitement was, the electricity even was different. You just could tell. And I think that the Democrats were in denial because they had won every office. They really had no accountability in their own mind that anything they did was overboard. And I think for me, you know, the pandemic, uh, there was an awakening for a lot of parents because now they were seeing what was being taught in their schools by Zoom. Uh, they had that time with their kids who then related to what was going on and what we see in, and I... I represent the Smith family out of Loudoun County whose daughter was brutally raped and the father, Scott Smith, who, who I, I think very highly of, was attacked for standing up and saying, Wayne, you're a liar. Well, that just started a fire, especially in Youngkin's campaign. The timing was perfect. Um, but you had all these parents standing up for the first time uh, where before they had maybe been a little more relaxed and letting this indoctrination get away from. And you really caught a wave there because Terry McAuliffe said, um, you know, basically, they're not your kids. Yeah. They're our kids. They're, they're, they're well. I think you know, he said what kids. I think he said what they've been thinking. That's they slipped out, but uh, but everything they've done over the last decade or so with the schools, uh, I think, is very telling. Yeah, and and what I'm seeing also too is it's not going away. It seems to be still building. Well, the mistake they made, and this is an easy mistake to fall into, is believing after they had won a succession, you know, succession of elections, that they were a permanent majority, and they behaved accordingly, which meant that they appealed only to their base. And you're seeing exactly the same problem that played out here in Virginia recur at the at the federal level, because the Biden administration, the House, and the Senate, with the exception of perhaps Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, uh, and not entirely an exception, they just an exception on a couple of, of small issues, uh, they're pretty much governing in a manner that would make you think that they were a permanent majority, not one that's facing you know, a, a serious setback this November. It was the same situation here in the state. Most of the, most of the Democrats, from everything that I've heard, never saw it coming. Um, one of the comments I started hearing after uh, the governor's election was how many people in the Northam administration were suddenly putting out resumes, something that should have been prepared sometime before because they just didn't think that it was going to happen. It was inconceivable. After Joe Biden carried the state by a fairly comfortable margin, I think a lot of them thought that this was a permanent thing. And it's it's never permanent. We get to the election. Youngkin pulls up this huge, he pulls off a huge upset. Uh, and we sweep the offices and we get back to House. What I've seen, and I'd like your perspective because as executive director, but also the data guy and working for Glenn, I mean, I've never seen a bigger bunch of sore losers in my life 
when we've lost elections, we still have worked with or tried to work with our Democrat counterparts, our Democrat governors. When they lost this election, they got butt hurt and butt hurt bad. And I think you've seen it this year in the past uh, General Assembly session with the Democrats who have a 2119. They're acting like it's 35 to 5. Um, and with the House now at least coming back 52-48 control, um, why won't they accept Glenn Youngkin? They've done everything to, to screw with his agenda. What is going on that he's not getting what usually we give the courtesy of every governor, whether it's their appointments or their agendas, at least a first look, second look, and approve? You're talking about the brick wall caucus? Yes. It's hysterical to me that they call themselves that. You get elected to go do something and make make change, and you call yourself a brick wall to, to stop anything good. Yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous. I don't, what's happening? I don't know. I mean, you all might know better than me, but I think I think they're still stuck in this mindset. I think they think that everything that happened was a fluke, that it was a one-off, it'll never happen again, and if they can just hold out long enough, they think they'll sweep everything. And, and I'll tell you, not to dive too deep into federal, but I think this November is going to be a rude awakening for them as well. Because they, they've got 21-19, they act like they're 35-5, and they think that they will be 35-5 next year. And uh, and I, I, I just, I, I don't understand the mindset, but... I do. They're, they're going through the stages of grief, and they're stuck on anger. <laughs> they're, they're not, they're not, they're not going to make bargaining at this point. And God knows they're not going to get to acceptance until they're in a minority again. And uh, th- that's exactly what what you're dealing with. Hermes you know? dealing with high gas prices at your at Sadler Brothers Oil and the, and the truck stops, and they wouldn't even think about a gas tax holiday holiday mm-hmm. for three months because it would take precious resources away from their sixth hot lane in Northern Virginia or their second tunnel in Hampton Roads. Yeah, I've tried to have this conversation. Not only are we in the convenience store truck stop business where people are paying higher prices at the pump. The people that the Democrats always say they're helping the most, the middle to lower income families are getting crushed the most mm-hmm. by these type things. But we also service the forestry and agricultural industry. Yeah. And I've got friends of mine that are running second and third generation farming operations, logging operations that are drastically shrinking their operation or going out of business because – when I used to take them, you know, if I take the average logging operation, a thousand gallons of diesel fuel a week, well, a year and a half ago that was two thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Now it's five five thousand dollars. So a guy that I used to give eight thousand dollars worth of credit monthly for fuel now needs twenty to operate. So as a business owner, do I give a guy twenty thousand dollars credit when he was struggling to pay eight? That's that's a concern, or do I cut this guy off? That if I know I don't take him fuel, I'm not going to get the ADOs me because he's out of business, and I try to bring these, you know, concerns. In fact, I saw Jeff a couple weeks ago at the Lincoln Reagan dinner mm-hmm. over in Chesterfield County, great event, and I got a chance to speak to our lieutenant governor for a few minutes, and she brought up we started talking about it, and I have since emailed her. She said, "Send me people's names and numbers." that are struggling with this because I want to reach out to them and learn. And I, when I got back home and the the, the following day, Sunday, I put together an email because I think it's important to put real people's names and stories. You don't just go say people are going out of business. These are the people's names and their family members that are suffering by some of these policies and this inflation that, uh, that is crushing these businesses that we 
need. I mean, they're vital to everything we do. Sometimes I think people in Northern Virginia believe that produce is grown in the back of food line, you know, and it's just a, you know, just a real problem when there's a big disconnect on policies that they yeah. think are important, but they're paying no attention to or do not. I give them the benefit of the doubt. I won't say they don't care, but they don't understand how it affects normal, everyday working people. And these are the kind of the things that I'm, you know, dealing with that are that are frustrating. That uh, that they just don't seem to get. They have this, uh, you know, elitist type approach. Same issues I had before I decided to sue Governor Northam over the skill game issue. I tried for two and a half years to go have meetings with Janet Howe, you know, with Louise Lucas, with everybody that I was told to go speak to, they wouldn't talk to me. They didn't feel like they needed to talk to me. They didn't want to talk to me. What I was telling them didn't fit their agenda they were trying to reach, so they shut me out. So, but that kind of attitude, I, to y'all's point, I think a lot of people are fed up with that. You know, even though somebody may not be saying what you want to hear, if you're going to be in those positions, you got to listen to people and mm -hmm. even give answers, even if it might not be the answer that, you know, the people want. And I think just not choosing not to communicate with people, uh, especially when things are the way they are now, is a bad, bad idea. Well, I think the White House demonstrates right now the same sort of arrogance every time the gas issue comes up and they decide that it's another opportunity to plug electric cars. It's like, how out of touch can you be? I can't afford one of those. You've got to be kidding me. You really expect the entire general public to suddenly go buy themselves you know, an, an electrically powered vehicle? Um, it, it's, it's absurd. And um, they, they're never dealing with the here and now. And uh, it, it just shows a level of just how out of touch they are. And, uh, you know, the, the problem is right now you're seeing a lot of the national news media depict what's going on as incompetence. The, the only thing really that's been incompetent that's happened in the Biden administration has been um, Afghanistan, which was just pure incompetence, and uh, the baby formula situation. That was pure incompetence. The, the rest of these disasters are intentional. They're entirely related to the policies that have been put in place. You know, why is inflation so bad? Well, part of it, sure, is government spending, but it was heading that way once they put the energy policies in place right after they went into, right after they went into office, because we know from experience that every time there is a sharp increase in energy prices and one that is sustained, that it results in price increases everywhere and that's exactly what's happened why because you can't get things to market without consuming energy period whether it's on a train or on a uh on a semi uh it, it just doesn't matter those those things require require energy and energy is what what drives the economy it's really if you look at it energy production is what separates the first world from the third and they are really intent at putting us at least down to second world they one of the things, which you just touched on it briefly, has been so frustrating with me in the last year, 18 months, as if Bill and I have, have been involved in this litigation. A lot of people that are not really in tune with it just think it's about having skill games and getting revenue off skill games mm. for certain businesses. That's the issue. But the real problem 
is the government overreaching into a business and saying, Hermie, you can't do this because we say now that this, these people can do it. Right. And so even though in, in that case, you've had skill games since the 80s, we now say that only casinos and Rosies can have them. You can't. You know, Janet Howell said, I was listening to one of those committee hearings one time last year discussing the skill games and loss of revenue. And she said, well, they need to find another way to make money. You know, being the convenience store owner. Yeah, the convenience store owner. The <laughs> they depended on owner. during the pandemic to yeah. stay open. She, I mean, she said that. Yeah. Convenience store owners need to find another way to make money. And I look at it like I know a lot of these people. Every time Bill and I go to court, there's 200-plus small business owners and operators standing outside the courtroom waiting to hear what the news is because they're trying to decide, can they stay in business another month? Can they give so-and-so a raise? Can they hire this person? Can they pay their rent? Can they do all this? And then we've got these people saying... And, oh, by the way, the government's making you pay at least $11 an hour to hire somebody just to work a cash register. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's just a... Talking about out of touch, it's like they have no idea. You know, and, and it's just really frustrating because these are personal stories that people are hanging on to their businesses and their livelihood... You know, all, all I ever want as a business owner, I have about 300 employees, I'd like to be somewhat responsible for whether or not my business is successful or a failure. And the government is taking that completely out of the... There's nobody that can absorb, say, a logger or a farmer, getting back to that, can absorb this type of inflation, these type of cost increases this quickly. There's no way that, yeah. that they can do that. And so we're, we're ignoring a big part of the backbone of the economy in South South Virginia and areas that I live in. That's why when we've talked about, we've kind of had a running talk and a, not a joke, but a running dialogue about this new 17th Senate district that, you know, we've talked about uh, the possibility of me stepping up and making a run at that. And, Six months ago, when I would ask people about that or they make comments about it with me, they would say, Hermie, why would you want to do that? But now, <laughs> as six months later, that conversation is, Hermie, we need you to do that because they understand how crucial and vital somebody has got to stand up and daily remind these people that are writing policy and writing government and representing people that these issues are important and while loggers and farmers may not be important in Fairfax they are crucial to our economy in areas that I live in but it's hard to get people in office now to acknowledge that and certainly have a conversation about it. I'll tell you one thing just to pair it off that is what I notice is all the Republicans we have jobs that's why you know they love coming up here and spending months at a time. I know. And we were in 85 days in a special session after George Floyd. Yep. They love it. They love the per diem. It's tax-free. They don't have jobs. They're retired. All of us are like, look, you're killing my business. <laughs> and so that's the difference. When you get a businessman in, usually in local government or in state government, they usually have jobs. Mm-hmm. And they and they contrast, I think, with what turns out to be the Northern Virginia elite, the Hampton Roads elite, yeah. where this is their – they love being called delegate or senator. That's what they want. They love the power that comes with it. And they lose that focus and perspective when they go back to home. Yeah. And in, I, in defense of those who said, why would you want to do that? Um, that is a statement that's usually 
coming out of love. And the reason why is, is they have watched as people who run for office have, you know, their lives uh, uh, invaded, uh, picked apart, uh, criticized. And uh, because a lot of times, especially the higher profile the race is, uh, you know, people, uh, the, the opposition campaign will find more about you than you knew about yourself. And then uh, uh, they are never restrained by, you know, uh, any kind of uh, sense of decency or anything like that. It's, uh, it's very cutthroat. So that's why a lot of times you get that reaction from the public because they've seen it before. They've seen, you know, different people who have had aspects of their personal lives uh, just strewn around everywhere. I can remember, and this was back in 97, so it's not as though... Uh, this is a recent, entirely recent phenomenon, but I was working with a uh, candidate for local government, and uh, uh, his opponent's campaign, unsigned, naturally, uh, distributed um, uh, his uh, a divorce filing that his uh, wife had filed against him. Now, what's really insidious about this is it was withdrawn, they reconciled. And we're together. And it was about probably 10 or 15 years old at the time he distributed it. And uh, uh, but, you know, stuff like that happens even in nice local neighborhood races now. And um, it's just a reality. It's something you have to brace candidates for when you're sitting down with them first time. It's like, you know, are there aspects of your life that you don't want to appear in the local paper because there's a pretty decent chance that they will. And I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sure Ken, you've had those Ken, discussions. You, you oh. were in Youngkin's case, and he stayed positive. Yeah, yeah. he stayed 100% positive. And he I didn't think, go negative. No, and, and the second the second that uh, Terry started to uh, to attack him, yeah. uh, and and I and I will say for what it's worth, I mean, not surprisingly, there was there were a lot of people that said hit back. Hit back. I mean, Terry McAuliffe has one of the largest closets of skeletons I've ever seen, and I think there's maybe still uh, fourteen skeletons. million dollars owed to the state of is it Louisiana or Mississippi, Mississippi. where that uh, where that car yeah. car plant doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah that, that there was more more dirt on Terry McAuliffe than anybody else in Virginia. But uh, the second that he started to attack Glenn, uh, there was an ad put out uh, where Glenn said, "In the I don't know if y'all remember it, but it had his four little dogs in it with him," and uh, he said look, get ready. It's coming. And I'm staying above it. And uh, after that, it was run, run, run. You know, the the, uh, the it's just, it's such like it's such an out of touch idea, though, to go after somebody's character, or go after, you know, something in the past. And nine times out of 10, it's, it's either not true or it's not the whole story. But here's the thing. My whole life has been in the public eye anyway. I mean, I've raced and I've been on TV and I've done all that. And that's one of the things that really frustrates me is some of these legislators, especially some that have been here the longest, it's like they want it to be about them, mm -hmm. you know, about the person. Shocking. It should be, <laughs> it should be about the people yeah. that you're going to represent. I've been spending some time, you know, trying to talk to local officials and local government officials, law enforcement officials, people in some of these different areas around this new district to see what they think. Because really, when the decision is made for me, is it'll come down to what do the people want? Do they think somebody like me needs to run? It shouldn't be whether or not I think I should run. It should be do, do they think they need somebody like me to run? And 
you know, I, I for so long I, I can I cannot say that I've never paid that much attention to politics because we all have to a certain degree because they all affect us in certain ways. But I've always maybe not tried to get involved because you know we go this way a little bit and we go back this way a little bit and most of the time we keep the train on the track. But we're so far off the reservation now because I see it every day. I have to every two weeks. You know, make about a three hundred thousand dollar payroll. You can't say yeah. reservation. That's what. <laughs> well, call it what you want. But I mean, we're we're if we don't if we don't react now, we can't we can't wait anymore. Mm-hmm. We have to get it right. We cannot afford to make another mistake in my part of Virginia that I am because it's a it's a lot of people really suffering right now, and I don't think a lot of people in Richmond really understand the full impact of some of their decisions they've made and the negative uh, impact they've had on some lives. Well, because they don't go out and talk to people. Right. And that, and that's that's the issue right there. You said talking to law enforcement officers. Do you think a single one of those Democrats went out and talked to law enforcement officers or their families, their parents, their children, their spouses about they how they the felt about... They year that summer in right. special session bashing them. Yep. I mean, and then they take them. away their quali- try to take away their qualified immunity, which is probably yeah. about the worst thing you can do. And they pat themselves on the back and go home. The heroes yeah. were the ones that broke the windows in these small businesses up and down Richmond. Mm-hmm. The the enemy, I mean, they were they were, I mean, bashing the police. You remember that mm-hmm. agenda they put forth? Yep. And here were you know, uh, police officers being shot in California, yes. dragging uh, their fellow officer in to cover and safety. And they're almost celebrating it. Yeah. I mean, it was awful, and, yeah. and we had some awful knockdown, dragout fights on the floor of the Senate about yeah. that. Yep. I mean, and you, you can go the side of of lawlessness, and they keep right. doing it. Yeah. They, you know, with lowering bail, we get people out committing more crimes. Well, what do you mean? Yeah. We're just being fair. Yeah. No, you're not. You're not yeah. protecting the citizenry, and that's the one job we do in the government. Yeah, and that, I mean, it's it's like you you go down the list. You can you can go you know look at the parole board. What they were doing, mm-hmm. you know, letting letting cop killers out of prison from the seventies, Murder. murderers, uh, you know, and you, you had uh, you had uh, what Terry McAuliffe auto penned was it two hundred thousand? Yeah. Was that the number? Yeah, uh, uh, restoration of rights without without even looking at it. And but 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 again, we're sitting here today talking about this. That was seven years ago. Uh, the qualified immunity was a year and a half ago, and today. I guarantee you, if you if you found one of them on the street and said, "What do you think about a law enforcement officer?" You're going to get that same out of touch response, and and it it says everything about them. I don't know. I don't want to say something that I am not sure of, but this is what I am sure of. Senator Lucas currently is my senator for Emporia Greensville. I cannot tell you the last time she's been outside of a campaign. <laughs> Appearance with Terry McAuliffe the last time she's been to Emporia Greensville. I'm not. I'm not joking. Yeah, has not been there at all. And same thing when I was. Bef- she's been on Emporia Street in Portsmouth. Yeah, <laughs> she's been. Before, she's the queen of Portsmouth. Man. Yeah. She's the powerful person in state politics. I'm before I decided to have this lawsuit, I went to her because I saw on the live stream of the Senate floor, Janet Howell says, "Skill games are costing the Virginia Lottery 140 million dollars in sales." I took all of my P&Ls from my stores that showed that was not an accurate statement and went right to Louise and put it on her desk and said, this information that Senator Howell is reading on the Senate floor is not accurate. Here's my information. And all she told me was, when it comes to skill gains, you got to talk to Tommy and Janet. 
but she's my she's my rep. That's yeah. that's what my representative yeah. told me. You have to go talk. Like if you're my representative and you care about me as a business owner and a job provider in your district, why don't you go talk to her? Yeah. But they got different agendas that kept them from doing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, and that was, and that's, that's kind of the, the we, we found this out uh, last year in particular, but we, we'd go out and talk to people who were from any persuasion, right? People that were on all sides of the aisle, people that didn't vote, you know, we'd go out and talk to everybody because at the end of the day, you still want to hear from those people. And, uh, and I think the governor said it best when he started, he said, I, I'm, I am governor of all Virginians. Yeah. And, uh, and I just, I, don't believe they take that approach. I think they are, they represent, Louise Lucas represents the Democrats who elect her. Mm-hmm. And that's about it. Well, and, and I think uh, that too is a great point because they then ridicule Yunkin. How dare you speak to all people? These are our people. You can't speak to them. And so when he does try to reach out, when he does blur the lines between partisanship and liberal and conservative, young and old, rich or poor, they just, you can't do that. And they throw a fit, and that, and then that sore loser crap comes right back to it. And you know the the number one thing that we hear uh, out on any campaign trail, whenever we go, we whenever we go, uh, you know, out out anywhere, is uh, is that we haven't heard from the Democrats in a while. Well, and that's uh, so, gentlemen. As we finish up before we get to the state stuff, let me ask you this: What do you think is going to happen in the twenty two midterms here, uh, in terms of the Feds? Um, do you think, you know, by the time this lands, do you think uh, Reeves is going to be there? Kiggins is going to be there? Do you think we're going to win back the, the Congress? How are we going to do in the Senate? I, I think by the time this, this airs, we're going to know uh, who our nominees are. But we've, we've got another uh, three hours until polls close, right? Yep. yep. And, uh, I mean, whoever whoever gets uh, gets the second and the seventh, we've got our nominee in the tenth. That's Hung Kao. And, uh, and he Great won candidate, on, by the way. Fantastic candidate. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. And, uh, and, and. You know, at the end of the at the end of the day, this is a this is a great year. Going to be a great year for us, and we're going to pick up three congressional seats at least. Uh, and that's what we're looking at. All right, we, we're going to take a little break here, but um, before we do, I'm going to give you a heads up of what's coming next. And I know I've been dominating the conversation. I want you, and especially Shep, I want your perspective from the state or the local level. You know, as a as a town councilman, I think your perspective is great. I've heard a few things here so far I want to ask. And good. So write them down because we're going to come right back. Uh, somebody's got to move the car. It might be parked illegally. Who might be gassed. I, I, I'm parked legally, but it expires at four and they tow. Yes. Okay. So what we're going to do is. There is no Stanley Law Group parking lot. I is. mentioned there's one right across the street. And there's one on the other side. There's one but right behind They here. don't own them. Well, we don't own them, but we can get you in them. Uh, so if you need to move a car, we'll take care of its parking. Uh, but we're going to talk about what's it going to take to win in Virginia uh, for the 2023 elections uh, to take back the Senate, maintain the House, and make sure that Governor Youngkin's agenda, a very good nonpartisan agenda that he has uh, for making Virginia better, uh, can get passed. And we're going to talk candidate school. What's it take for somebody to run and win and be successful? He's running one. He can tell you all about that. Fantastic. We'll be right back after these messages. Are you feeling stuck making minimum payments on your credit card debt? SaveWithConrad.com can help, and you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? Get rid of your credit card debt and lower your monthly payments right now at SaveWithConrad.com. Hi, folks. This is Hermie Sadler. Thanks for listening to our all-new podcast, 
Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator. I hope you are enjoying the show as much as Senator Stanley and I enjoy bringing it to you. Whether you're a family traveling together or a truck driver hauling freight up and down the highway, I hope you will take the time to visit one of our Sadler Travel Plaza locations in Virginia and North Carolina. Sadler Travel Plaza locations are licensed dealer locations for pallet travel centers. And we also carry Shell Motiva Petroleum products for our four-wheel friends. We pride ourselves on providing one-stop shopping for service, food, and entertainment. Our food options include Five Guys Burgers and Fries, Quiznos, Dairy Queen, Hermie Sadler's Faux Show Bar and Grill, Victory Lane Restaurant, Hunt Brothers Pizza, Dunkin' Donuts, and much, much more. Our locations include Sadler Travel Plaza in South Hill, located off I-85 at Exit 12. The Sadler Travel Plaza of Emporia, which is conveniently located on Exit 11B off I-95. And Sadler Travel Plaza on Highway 58 in Suffolk. We also have our North Carolina location, Sadler Travel Plaza in Dunn, North Carolina. That's Exit 75 off I-95. We appreciate all of our customers. And Bill and I appreciate you listening to Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator, powered by Pesamatic. Hey, this is Bill Stanley, Hermie Sadler's sidekick on this podcast. But when I'm not in Richmond at the Capitol or doing this podcast, my real job for the past 27 years is as a trial attorney with the Stanley Law Group. Here at the Stanley Law Group, we represent our clients in every courthouse in the Commonwealth. No problem is too small for us to solve. No case is too big for us to win. Whether it's criminal charges, traffic offenses, civil disputes, litigation matters of any sort, we handle it all. We make sure we treat every client like family because they are to us. Your problem is our problem. Your success is our success because we hate to lose more than we love to win. And believe me, we win a lot. Don't believe me? Go ask Hermie. I'm his favorite lawyer. Give us a call at 540-721-6028 and let us help you. Or visit our website at www.vastanleylawgroup.com. At the Stanley Law Group, we'll make sure that we are the lawyers that you swear by and not at. Who's going to take care of your family if something happens to you? What would they do without your income? If you don't have a plan, you need to go to GoliathLife.com. Get a quick quote from more than 20 carriers. You don't even have to leave the house. If you need a medical exam, they'll send somebody to your house or office. You're in total control. You pick the rates, you pick the payments, you pick the terms. You're in total control, but it gives you and your family peace of mind. What if something happens to your income? Hurry to GoliathLife.com. And we're back, and I hope you're buying some insurance from Conrad or maybe getting a nice mortgage loan quote from our friend Conrad, one of our sponsors of this show. I'm Virginia State Senator Bill Stanley, and I'm leaning right. And I'm Hermie Sadler, and I'm turning left. Did you know Conrad was married to one of Ric Flair's daughters? I did not. Well, there you go. Some Is more, that right? More useless information. Yeah. More importantly, Jeff, did your car get towed, or are you good? I, I made it into a uh, neighboring parking lot, and I'm relieved to know that your advertisers or insurance companies. I really thought I was going to miss something by like Red Wiggler, the Cadillac of worms, <laughs> you know? Well, you know, we do have some other advertising that's uh, on either side, but we are powered by Pacematic. Very grateful for their being our primary sponsor. You know, where we left off, um, we were talking about the state of Virginia, the state of politics, federal and state now. And what we've got to really look towards, and I think this next segment is, we're going to look towards what's it going to take to win in 2023 and more importantly, what's it take to run a campaign? If you're somebody who's interested, who might be a former NASCAR uh, driver, 
uh, and Fox analysts who might be thinking about running in the 17th district. And the 17th Senate district is a brand new district. I think it's a key to taking control of the Senate. Wouldn't you agree with me, uh, Jeff? It's in, it is definitely a seat that we would have to hold if we were to be in the majority. Yes. And so the funny thing that I'm hearing, and you know, we hear rumors a lot, but I'm hearing this rumor grow stronger and stronger, is when redistricting occurred, and I was on the beloved redistricting commission that could not get out of its own way. We always locked up and ties the, the citizen uh, commissioners. God bless them. They were trying real hard, but they always went to their partisan corners. We could never get any compromise. But what we saw was the Supreme Court ended up drawing the lines. And what they did was they drew a lot of senators, incumbent senators together. They did not look at incumbency at all. And one of those, I think, important races that I think we're all going to pull up a seat and pop some popcorn was the race in the eastern part of the state where Senator Louise Lucas is now put together in the next district election in 2023 with Senator Lionel Spruill. I actually wonder whether they did not look at who was who when drawing the lines. And the reason I say that is when you look at who was drawn in with whom, the more senior you were in the Senate, the more likely you were to be drawn into the seat with a junior member. Hmm. And that happened to Senator Saslaw. That happened to Senator Howell. That happened to Senator Lucas, who's the president pro tempore of the, of the Senate. It happened to Senator Newman. It happened to Senator Norman. It happened to Senator Edwards. What do all these people and Senator ha- Hanger? have in common? And, and Senator Hanger. What do all these people have in common? All of these people were elected to the Senate of Virginia in the previous century. And um, huh. uh, yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah, no, there was a there was an age bias that was pretty. If you were over seventy, the the odds are you're you do not have a seat to yourself. And all the people I just named aren't over seventy. Senator Newman, I know, is not. Uh, but um, uh, but the others are, and uh, they were all drawn into uh, drawn into seats with younger members. So I I really wonder whether <clears throat> the um, special masters. Uh, we're not looking at that because it is rare to see so many people in leadership of both parties being uh, drawn in together. And that was especially the case in the Senate. Now, I'm not necessarily breaking news, I don't think, but I have been having some conversations and doing some research about potentially considering a run for the 17th in Virginia. So you're doing that yourself. It's not just Bill promoting you every other second on <laughs> no, but, going no, through this no, broadcast. No, but my, no, but okay. my, my point not is... all the time. My point is <laughs> I've been hearing for almost a month now that Louise Lucas is considering relocating into the 17th, and I guess she thinks that Lionel Senator Spruill will keep the her district and she can just move over a couple miles and take the 17th district. Is that is that not something that y'all have heard? Well, I've heard it, and I think, you know, it's amazing to me because she owns Portsmouth, and that's her base, and she can lose other areas. And this is the western – the 17th now has part of the, her old western part of her district, as you said earlier, but didn't visit it very much. And so I guess her expectation is, is that they will come out for her now. But without that powerful Portsmouth base – that may be a real issue and a problem for her. Uh, and quite frankly, does that not say if it's true – that she believes that Lionel, Senator Spruill, really good guy, both of them, and I like, and I like Louise, don't get me wrong, um, 
don't doesn't that say yeah of course <laughs> i work with them and I, I like louise i like lionel but don't you think that says in her mind or at least in their minds the the group think is that lionel will probably win that that primary if they go head to head well i i think you know every incumbent has to weigh their options as far as what their districts are after redistricting and whether or not to to continue running or to to move to another neighboring district at you, know, you were faced with that problem 10 years ago you when, talked me into it when well <laughs> the you went with the bulk of your constituents and the bulk of your constituents were moved into the district with roscoe reynolds because he needed a new district because his previous one the people had figured him out and um uh you know, a lot of times members make that determination that they're going to do it. And mind you, it's not for fame and riches. It, it being a member of the Senate of Virginia pays you a grand total of eighteen thousand dollars a year. Which, if this were nineteen fifty-eight, it'd be a lot of money. <laughs> but um, it's not. That's the last time they probably gave a raise. And we we don't vote raises for each other. But you know, the one thing that I've seen is Louise Lucas has gotten a lot more chippy. And um, she's been out there attacking Governor Yunkin to no end, was even imitating his red sweater vest. And Governor Yunkin, being the gentleman that he was, because they weren't official Yunkin red sweater vest, brought them down, brought her a, a red sweater vest along with Mamie Locke, Senator Locke. But she has been a real force on Twitter. And now, um, some of you may know, and, and we're going to play in a second, um, she is using some foul language in front of public while making a speech and and so we have this thing called Hermes answer machine which is an old answering machine of Hermes where people call in on our Facebook page leaning right and turning left uh, podcast you can go to our Facebook page and leave a message for Hermes and if we play it on the air we'll send you some merch uh, from Sadler Stanley Racing um, but we got this interesting podcast question on the answering machine and I want you all to listen to it and then uh, we'll then play the clip where, where this probably comes from, from Louise Lucas. But this was a message we got. Now is time for Hermes Answering Machine. Hi, this is Hermie. I can't come to the phone right now because I'm too busy trying to figure out how Joe Biden made these gas prices at Sadler Travel Plaza so damn high. But they're not as high as a guy across the street. So please leave a message after the beat. Yo, Hermie, my name's Richard Head, and recently your state Senator Louise Lucas used the word motherfucking speech. Man, let me ask you something. Is it anything's ever made you mad as a motherfucker? And would you ever use the word motherfucking in a speech if you were in fact as mad as a motherfucker like Louise Lucas said she motherfucking was? And what do you think about the fact that an elected official like Louise Lucas would say such a thing in public. Man, I'm tired of these motherfucking politicians doing what the f they want to do. I don't know about you, but her saying that makes me mad as a motherfucker. Well, thanks, Hermie. I hope you give it a run, and if she runs against you, I hope you kick her motherfucking ass. Bye, motherfucker. I, 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 had, I had no idea you did blue. Uh, um, well, we, we will bleep that out for our, our listening audience, but I want to show you, I want to demonstrate, and maybe I'm not going to bleep out this part. I'm, I'm going to tell everybody this call came in, and it's a very important call to answer, uh, but this call came in because of something Louise Lucas did and then published on her own Twitter page. She was in front of a very large audience, and she said 
the following, which was recorded. So come on now, Virginia, let's get fired up. We're going to take our voices and make our voices heard and send a message to the governor, to the Commonwealth, and to this nation that we are pissed as a motherfucking <laughs> That's pretty shocking language coming from a sitting state senator who has been in the Senate for a long time and then stands in front of a crowd and says something like that. The question from the caller was, of course, you know, Hermie, I mean, is that acceptable? And well, guys, I'd like your opinion as well, all of you. Well, my opinion is no. Uh, certainly, Senator Lucas has been around a long time and she certainly has the right to address her base or try to rally her base in a way that she sees fit. But to me, and I've said this before we went to break, uh, my, my way to try to communicate with my constituency is you tell me what your concerns are, what's going on uh, in your lives and tell me how I can, uh, tell me how I can fix it. I don't think using that type of language, um, is appropriate, especially on that stage by someone with that title. But there again, she she's certainly entitled to address her crowd the way she wants. I just don't think that works in the new 17th. Ken, what do you think? I mean, she was directing that at your boss. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's completely unacceptable. I, you know, I don't think I don't think you're going to find a person out there. Uh, I, I don't think you're going to find a rational person out there that thinks that that's the way you should comport yourself when you're a state senator or or really anybody in in public. But you know, the the, the other thing I heard in that clip, uh, which I think we hear a lot from her, is um, she's mad. She thinks this. She feels that. I don't hear a lot about what her constituents think and feel. I don't hear a lot about the voters. Everything I hear from Senator Lucas is it's me, 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 and uh, and I think it, I think it says a lot. Hmm. Uh, Guru, Jeff Ryer, what what are your opinions of this? He's probably still trying to recover from hearing all that on the podcast. I I was an altar boy. Um, <laughs> I got fired from that job, but that's beside the point. Sounds like another podcast topic. <laughs> um, first of all, is it permissible language? Yes, if you have a D beside your name. Because the fact of the matter is, there are two standards as far as what is acceptable and what is not. Yeah, I'd get killed if I did and, that, and if you did that in Patrick County. If, I would be if, thrown out. If yep. you did that and you had an R beside your name, the press would be running it every single night. They'd be bleeping it on television and talking about how objectionable you are. Uh, if a Democrat does that sort of thing, uh, it's uh, it's comical. Uh, one of the things Celebrated, that, even. There's a, a really fun comparison on this that uh, and it's a comparison between the Nixon tapes and the Johnson tapes in the White House because you know Dick Nixon didn't put the recording device in. It had been there for some time. And uh, whenever you uh, see an analysis on uh, a history channel of the Johnson tapes, it's like, oh, that Lyndon. He was such a rogue. Oh, that is so Lyndon. Isn't that just wonderful? Look at how fresh it was. And it's foul. It's absolutely positively foul. You know, Dick Nixon makes a mistake of saying a swear word, and it's the most disgusting thing under the sun. And um, it's just a it's just a constant double standard. I I do I've done press now for Republicans for twenty years, and when asked by a group what I do, I say I work for the away team <laughs> because that's what it's like doing press for the Republicans. Because it it doesn't matter 
what your side does, they may have to report the scores, but they don't have to say nice things about your pitcher or the quality of, of your manager or the team as a whole. They just have to report the, the score. And they will praise the other side to the hill or excuse them. And Senator Lucas is a good example of uh, questionable behavior being consistently excused. I mean, is this just a, another example of, you know, I think it was uh, in the Obama administration, when, when they go low, we go lower. I mean, have we just yeah. changed the narrative again? Have we just taken away any decency uh, when you can say that in front of a large crowd, it sounds like, they, and, and do this? And they think it's great. She posted it on her Twitter feed and she said, yes, I said that. In fact, her daughter said the same thing. Uh, her daughter sits on the city of Portsmouth um, council said the same thing, and it seems like they're parodying each other. In a council meeting. Mm -hmm. um, there is no depths to which they do not allow themselves to sink. And I mean, just if you consider it objectively, they created a rumor against a candidate for president of the United States to deflect attention from a similar deficit with their own candidate. And then perpetuated that rumor with the assistance of the American press corps for three solid years to undermine a presidency. That is not since uh, probably uh, 1824 to, to 1828 under John Quincy Adams was something like that perpetuated. And uh, it was, uh, uh, it's, it's reprehensible, absolutely reprehensible. And now they're complaining and holding the third Trump impeachment because uh, they uh, believe uh, that um, uh, he was uh, questioning the results of the election. Well, Democrats haven't accepted the results of a presidential election since 1988. <laughs> that's, a la that's the last that's time. That's the truth. That's the last time they've they challenged every single uh, one. Trump's election. You can you can go back historically. You can pull up Wikipedia today and uh, read the entry on the election of 1888 and how the Democrats think they got robbed and said so at the time. 1896, they thought that the election was bought by corporate America. Uh, 1876, they obviously thought that was bought. Anytime that it's even remotely close, they, uh, they scream that it's, that it's the end. They challenge. They take it all the way. They took it to the, to the floor of the House in 2004. They were complaining because George W. Bush won Ohio by 118,000 votes. Well, that's not close. Donald Trump lost the presidency by less than 40. And that's combined in in four different states. And they also they also complain. They say, "Oh, we would never fix an election." But I'm reminded of John F. Kennedy's dad, who said, yeah, uh, when he won West Virginia, "Hey, look, fellas, I didn't pay for a landslide." Pay for a landslide. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think Stacey Abrams still thinks she's the governor of Georgia, <laughs> and, and and won't change that that position. Won't retract it, and was celebrated by the same media that that excoriates Trump. Celebrated by the Democrats in Virginia. You know, there's there's just a different standard. It's something that. You know, you talk about when we uh, try to recruit candidates. It's something that we, we fill them in on if, if they're going to be a Republican. It's like, you know, you, in the world of politics, you're Ginger Rogers. You have to do everything they do except backwards and high heels. We don't encourage that, by the way, for our male candidates. So. I need some high heels. I, Bill says I'm short. I'm your oh, high. yeah, like he's one to talk. <laughs> so we've been through all I, that. I remember him when his hair was naturally blonde. That's how long I've known him. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not unnatural. It's turned gray. Q-tip. I am not putting anything in my hair. I swear. Q-tip. I think that it's that sun-in stuff. Q -tip. What do you think? So yeah. we heard all that, but as people that are involved on the inside and, and hear stuff, do you think – 
is there a possibility that Louise Lucas will come over and, and attempt to run in the 17th? And if so, just so people understand, what would she have to do, logistically speaking, to pull that off? Well, the logistics part's easy. All she has to do is change her residence to a place that's in her existing district and also in the new district. And as you said, for example, that means she could move across the street from you mm-hmm. and and do that, and she'd be in her existing district and, and also the new district. That way so, she doesn't lose her seat before the election. Right, that way, that way she, and or her seniority, which is you know very important in a legislative body. D- did you just say that she had to move twice? No, just the once. Just once. Just the once. Yeah, she'd have to move from where she lives now has been drawn into the new district, but it's still part of her old district. So she has to live in the old district and the new district in order to run in the new district. So you have to find the overlapping territory between the two. Well, there's a lot of overlapping territory simply because uh, her district stretched from Portsmouth, which dominated the district, all the way out to Emporia Greenville. So that's so she has a pretty wide swath. All of she could basically pick any place along Route 58, mm-hmm. US 58. So you think she will? I, I, I like um, judging from what we've seen so far, the one option she will not exercise is an option to leave or leave gracefully. That means whichever situation she thinks most advantages her and the ability to stay she will take. If that means trying to win the Democratic primary against Senator Spruill, she'll go that route. If that means trying to uh, win the uh, geographic bulk of her current district by moving into the 17th, she'll take that route. You know, And I, a lot of them make those decisions. I don't know if any of you watched, but New York State a few weeks ago had its redistricting turned upside down by a state court, which is amazing because the um, the their re- congressional redistricting was drawn by a Democratic legislature, and every member of the court that threw it out uh, was also appointed by a Democrat, which will give you an idea of just how egregious their gerrymander was. Well, when they did that, a, a bunch of different incumbents ended up in together, and some of them just started picking different districts they were going to run in. Uh, and in Congress, you don't have to live in the district in order to run for the congressional seat in, in the state senate and the House of Delegates, you do. Um, but uh, you know, it's uh, in politics, it becomes kind of you know whatever it takes in order to stay. And somebody with Senator Lucas's seniority, who's become you know a, a, accustomed to her position, uh, I think would be pretty aggressive about trying to stay. So yeah, I think it's a distinct possibility she can move into the seventeenth. She's going to make that judgment based on what she thinks is best. I think you know the the way that the lines are drawn favors us or at least gives us a fighting chance and Hermie, i can tell you right now with the redistricting commission the belief of the democrats who sat on that commission was is that to the victor go the spoils we've got umpteen number of uh, house districts we should keep that we won the governor's mansion we won lieutenant governor attorney general we have all the seats we have the majorities now in both house and senate and I remember uh, our friend, Senator Ryan McDougal, leaned in and said, and this was before the election of Glenn Youngkin, well, if we go that way and it turns out we win in November, you going to come back and change yeah. this up? Mm-hmm. And they scoffed at him. Yeah. Yeah. There was no possibility. And lo and behold, the uh, monumental and historic election of Glenn Youngkin, Winsome Sears, and uh, Jason Miari has occurred, and that's where we are today. And now they are scrambling 
to protect their own eggs. And so what do you think it's going to take? Let's generally, before we talk about what it takes for, for a candidate to run and win, what's it going to take as a party in 2023 to strengthen our, our majority in the House, to get back the Senate, uh, so that we can deliver on Glenn Youngkin's agenda? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. I mean, <clears throat> I, th- I think it starts with unity, right? Everybody's got to be on the same page. We're, we're going to have some competitive primaries and conventions, nominations all over, and that's going to be all right. Um, but at the end of the day, we all need to be marching towards the same the same uh, goal here. And, uh, and, uh, and I do think since last November, and even before that, on the campaign trail, I think that for the first time in a long time, at least in recent memory, feels like we uh, we absolutely are on that way. Um, you know, I, I I think that a lot of people used to say, well, you know, we've got to we've got to hope that the Democrats say this, or we've got to hope that. And I don't think we need to hope that anymore. I think we've got uh, we've heard more than enough over the last three years. Um, but I think it's about I think it's going to be about going out and and reminding the voters of what they said. Uh, you know, one of the big things I think that separates us, and you know, it's it's interesting when we talk about uh, when we talk about Senator Lucas because. I mean, I think she she thinks she's entitled to a seat in the Senate. And I think that that a lot of people on our side, uh, their their biggest uh, challenge is uh, is not getting out there and talking to people. It's it's you know they they've got to have the right message to make sure that people uh, agree with them, which means they have to be right for the district and the voters and and uh, and the citizens. What what it's going to take is making sure that we get our message in front of enough people. And if you look at if you look at the polling data, that's now trickling in, but but the floodgates are going to open at some point. I mean, you can see at a national level for the first time in uh, how many years is it? It's it's been quite a long time um, that the the national electorate is is generally Republican. I'll say leave it there because that's going to change week to week. But we're going to stay in the lead there. I mean, we're we're looking at we're looking at a a significant shift. Um, in Virginia in the way people are looking at partisanship, at least in my opinion. And I think what's happening is is that we're actually getting out there and talking to people about what are our opinions on law enforcement? What are our opinions? You know, what are our plans on um, uh, schools and on parents? And I think that there's a, a lot of there are a lot of issues out there that are, uh, you know, flat 50-50 or issues that um, issues that we, you know, if, if you if this is your number one priority, you already know how you're voting. Uh, but I also think that there are a lot of issues out there that are fundamentally, you know, 80-20, going back to Newt Gingrich and the contract with America. I mean, there's there's a lot of 80-20 issues out there that for the first time in a while, we're actually starting to talk to voters about how we feel. And then I think it's a it's a bleed over, you know, it's it's a it's it's a question of uh, doing it at all levels, right? I mean, it's it is always fascinating to me when we go on. We were just uh, on the road for about three weeks doing candidate training schools, and it's always fascinating to me to sit down with people and and you say, you know, you got you know a, a number of counties that are uh, solid red counties that were won by uh, Governor Yunkin handily, uh, won by uh, Lieutenant Governor Sears, Attorney General Miares, and uh, you know their their school board is four to one Democrats to Republicans, um, yeah. and I think that that the, one of the biggest challenges we have is that we need to get out there and make sure that our local candidates are, uh, first of all, first of all, make sure that we have local candidates to run. Uh, you know, there's some places where it's just it's difficult to find people um, to run because they don't want to go through the, the onslaught. Uh, and then, and then I think we need to make sure that we're actually 
working with them and talking to them and, and helping people out. Uh, but if you have the same message, and fundamentally, and I, I don't want to keep going back to uh, qualified immunity, but you know, fundamentally, I think every Republican running at every at every level in Virginia is going to have uh, either the same thoughts on qualified immunity, or at the very least, we are going to be bunched much tighter, and the Democrats are going to be on the other side. So, making sure that people understand, you know, the voters understand, hey, this this person you know, you know them, they've been on the school board for a long time, and, and you may know them well, they may be a friend of yours, but do you know what their opinion is on the mask mandates? You know, do you know what their opinion is on law enforcement if they're on the board of supervisors? Do you know what their opinion is on on fixing the potholes in uh, in your county and 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 is it getting done? So CRT. I mean, there's a CRT? whole host of issues, and, yeah. and you know, and just to add to that, I think what we've seen though is kind of a a weird shift. You know, I remember the Democrats always being the party of the little guy, and they would tag us with "You're the party of big business and corporate elites." We're the party of the little guy. Mm-hmm. We're not the corporate elites. We don't dictate how people should live their lives in the ways that they are, even to the point that they say you can't have as much First Amendment rights as you should or as entitled by the Constitution. Jeff, what do you what do you see as going to be the keys to success in 23 before we get to candidate school here? I, I'd say the key to success in uh, 23 is going to be uh, issues in voting records. I mean, one of the reasons why the Democrats lost as many seats in the House as they did last time, those weren't, you know, some kind of ethereal open seats. Those were incumbents who went down. Those were incumbent Democratic legislators who lost. Why? Well, because they were no longer capable of running against Donald Trump, who wasn't in the White House any longer, and trying to transfer an issue. They had to run on their own records. And their own records were ones that were not attractive to voters in a lot of different areas. And that's why so many of them went down um, uh, so quickly, you know, two-year terms and out, and back to Republican representation in those districts. Um, despite the fact, by the way, that they overwhelmingly outspent their Republican challengers, there's, I don't think there was a race in the House where the Republican um, challenger outspent a Democratic incumbent, and in most of the races it was two to one or better, and in one of them it was ten to one, and they still lost. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's the voting record. It's the things that they put themselves on and, and that they went along with um, that they are trying in some cases to to fix right now. Um, I mean, I think there's probably a good deal of, of panic over what they've done in uh, the criminal justice area, uh, and rightfully so. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. And do you think, I mean, do you think they're going to be able to moderate their message, or do you think they're going to still be stuck... Uh, espousing the extreme agenda that has been we've been seeing in the federal level, and we saw even down here in Virginia for the first time uh, in the last couple of years. I mean, it seems like the we had the Tea Party; they were older folk. They're now in their seventies and eighties, um, and they wanted us to, you know, uh, you know, adhere to the Constitution. What you're seeing is a lot more young people that are in the Democrat Party with really extreme views. It's faculty lounge. It's college. It's it's the the agenda of the uh, colleges and universities. It's very left wing. You know, and it just is. I mean, look, Man, these, these are away. people who think that, that they, not their language, gets to choose their pronoun. These are people who think that there is an endless array of, of genders. I mean, the, the reality is not a restriction for their line of thought. And um, whenever that's the case, you're going to ultimately be at a disadvantage because most people can acknowledge reality. 
I think it's going to, you know, and, and and I think you're going to see both. I think on the one hand, you're going to see some some real wacky stuff. You're going to see some incredibly extremist, uh, incredibly extremist stuff coming out. On the other hand, I think you're going to see some some ideas that sound hyper rational. Some ideas that sound like things people are. Gonna, I mean, I remember in 2012 uh, when Barack Obama would campaign on lowering taxes, which was fantasy. And hysterical, given he had been in office for four years and had not even uh, broached that subject. Um, so I think you'll see some of that. I think you'll see them attempting to take some of our messaging that works, particularly in law enforcement, as they make up for some of the things that they've they've pushed. Um, and then, I, but that'll be balanced out against the uh, you know the the extremism. So let's get to this part that is very interesting to me. Hypothetically, I'm going to throw some hypotheticals at you. Okay. I have a friend. Oh my God. Guys, I love one of the guys I love hypothetically um, is you, thinking you about realize we're both with the party and we have to remain neutral. Yeah. And, okay. All right. Yeah. Go ahead. That's why it's a hypothetical. Okay. Okay. It's a hypothetical. And this person is thinking about running for office, maybe at the town council level, as my good friend Shep Moss serves, maybe at the school board level, maybe in the House of Delegates, maybe in the Senate. Let's open the door to so you want to be a candidate. Candidacy 101, the person that, that has the courage to step out there but has never run or won an office before, let's break it down and walk through what's it take uh, to, to announce, to run a campaign, organizing, and be successful. Do you like people? I'm just going to sit back here and I'm going to listen. That's kind of the first question you have to ask yourself. Do you like people? Because campaigning is all about meeting people. And spending time talking to people, whether it's going door to door or whether it's in large groups or whether it's addressing different settings, campaigning is all about interacting with people. If you are not comfortable interacting with people, you will probably not be a successful candidate or, you know, you will certainly be challenged as one because ultimately that that shows itself. So that's that's probably number one. You have to ask yourself, are you comfortable interacting with people? If the answer to that is yes then there's a series of steps and training that both parties put candidates through and try to get them through the, uh, through the process and make what is really kind of raw material, somebody that has an idea that they want to be in public office or a mission or perhaps a particular cause, turns them into somebody that, that, you know, that accentuates their own positive aspects as a candidate, makes them better at being able to communicate their message to the voters. And uh, Ken is conducting training classes across the state right now on mm-hmm. that very topic. How do you how do you take your desire to serve and turn it into something that facilitates you being elected? You know, my situation on the local level was a little bit different because it was 2020. It was year COVID. Yeah. So it wasn't that personal interaction as you were just talking about. Hopefully we're going to be able to get back to that. So most of my campaign was social media. Mm -hmm. at that time and you know on the local level as far as town council we're not i don't think party line democrat versus republican in my situation i think we are party line old guard versus new guard you know we've got well-established council members that have been on there for long in the tooth my perspective uh is is uh, not in the direction that that I, as a business owner, a lot like, you know, Hermie and I will be able to draw on a lot of the same experiences, both being business owners. And 
you know, what do you tell a candidate that is maybe not running Republican Democrat? I understand everybody's going to probably be affiliated one party or the other, but the Republicans and the Democrat parties are not down in South Hill helping me campaign. I'm doing it basically on mm-hmm. my own. What do you tell a candidate? Because we have elections this November in South Hill. What would be good advice? And, and we have five candidates running for three seats. Again, very, very wow. contentious. Same as it was when I ran. What do you tell a candidate on that level? What advice would you give them? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it, I think it's a, I think it's a tricky one. I, I, I want to, you know, to just to step back to the first part uh, briefly here. So, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of, there's different ways to get on the ballot, and and people can, depending on the office that they're running for, um, you know, constitutional office, town office, there's you can choose different things. Um, you know, I, I always tell people, and it probably isn't surprising given what I do for work. Uh, I always tell people go go for the endorsement of your of your local Republican unit because that is the extension of the party right there. I mean, we you know it's Republican Party of Virginia is it's a it's a, it's a house built on 126 strong center blo- 125 now strong cinder blocks, and um, you know so our local units uh, are absolutely. Uh, should should absolutely be a resource and in, in most places are um, you know in terms of in terms of people who strike out on their own and uh, and and even if they you know sort of lean more conservative I, I think Jeff said it best it's all about talking to people it's all about going out there and talking to people but but I do think that there's uh, you know for our for our folks who are Republicans and who want to run for uh, local office, especially, I think there is a lot that the party can do, uh, both at the local level, your congressional district, and at the state party level. Um, you know, the the other thing, I, I other piece of advice we gave, like we were on the road for about three weeks here, uh, went all the way, made our way from Fairfax uh, over to Lynchburg, down to the beach, and I think we ended in Abington. That was the last stop uh, on on the trip, and we were doing candidate training schools. Um, and of course, we got this, you know, this big long PowerPoint, right? That I'm sure put people to sleep in the first 20 minutes. But you know, all this information and the resources, and here's how you do this. We were very, uh, very blessed to be accompanied by Tammy Alexander from the uh, uh, Board of Elections Office, who, who talked about, um, you know, how to file your finance reports and other things that can really trip up candidates. So now there are resources out there at the state level that to make sure everything's filed properly. But um, you know, we always, we always end our our training schools with a very very important thing which is that you know we will never know your area better than you do and uh i you know what for whatever that is if it's if it's it's town or a county or or a a, you know house senate congressional district or or even the whole state um you know we're always going to know a lot less about where you're from and the people who are around you than you do and i think one of the things that that'll happen sometimes is you know, when people, when candidates go out seeking advice, they get a lot of good advice about kind of hypothetical situations, right? Like, uh, you know, here's, here's how you, uh, you know, here's how you would do a a mail program, right? Here's how you would make phone calls. And and we get a lot of smart people uh, in this business, I think. But, but at the end of the day, when, when you're out there talking to people, it's, it's your message that's going to win. And that's, that's kind of the key for us is, is, there's a lot of tools and resources, but it's your message that's going to win. The most interesting conversation that I've had 
just thinking about the possibility, one of my dear friends, I serve on a bank board with Kirk Cox, mm-hmm. a local community bank. And so he and I had a breakfast uh, a month or so ago when I started having this conversation. And the way he told me that he campaigned and how he did it and the the intensity of it and the labor, and you know, door to door to person to person – it was the first time I, it really like hit me the the gravity of really what it's going to take, not just the seventeenth, but when you're getting your message out and what your message is, you really have to go give your message, deliver it person to person, door to door, and in Kurt's opinion, let them ask you questions and right. and in even from people that. Are, not going to ask the questions you want, and even people you're not probably going to give the answers maybe exactly they want, but maybe explain to them a little bit about why your answer is what it is. But of all the conversations, all the talks, all the things, Kurt really put it home to me about really how much is involved in what, you know, when you're trying to, to, to reach people, it's going to take on a, on a statewide level. But my question to you guys is, is, in your opinion, how important at all, maybe, is political experience when you're looking at a candidate that may be interested in running for any office, whether it be local, state, whatever? The, how how important can political experience be, and sometimes can it be a disadvantage? Well, it the the advantage it gives you is you you know what to expect of of what the circumstances are going to be. The, dis, the disadvantage it gives you is it, it gives you a, a, a record, good and bad. You know, things that can be pointed out, things that can be exploited, uh, or things that you can, you know, run on and advance yourself. Uh, because in a, w- once you get to elected office, uh, there are a lot of decisions that may make sense to you, but might not make sense necessarily to uh, to somebody else unless you can properly explain them and if you're explaining generally you're losing so that's a challenge so it's a double-edged sword i'd say is the probably the right way to describe you know being an incumbent office holder but there's no question that they operate with they're a little higher up on the learning curve as far as what to expect what it's like being a being a candidate and at the at the local level and i believe this is the case at every level you you know the key to any successful campaign is they they picked a message. They decided what they were going to going to run on, what they were going to focus on, and they made sure that that was a message that was relatable to a majority of the public. Because that's what it's about. You when you're running for office, you've got a math problem. How do I get how do I get more than than the other guy as far as the number of votes or the other the other gal? Um, yeah, but you know, once you get there, you've also got a math problem. Well, that's because true. if you don't have the votes. You can't get your agenda done. I'm in that situation. My votes are literally 62 every issue every month. Well, you're, and you're just an election away from being in the majority. Well, <laughs> that was going to be my next comment. Hopefully in November, true. if we can flip some seats, yeah. you know, we'll have a chance to get something productive done. Because like you just said, if you're explaining, you're losing. Yeah. I'm explaining every meeting. Right. And and, and it's it doesn't matter. I can't count to four. I can't even get it to a tie yeah. to let the mayor vote. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what the issue is. I think I do think there's a big difference, and people pay attention to this between, you know, uh, always falling on the the south end of the the vote spectrum uh, versus you know trying to do something positive and getting shut down, right? You know, I mean, we've got we we were just talking about it earlier that you know we've got some obstructionists in the Senate here, and uh, there's a big difference between that and. You know, when you're in the minority, there's a big difference between that and, you know, trying to propose things that are good and, and, and not getting the votes you need. And I think I think that, you know, it, it, to, to, to the question of what, uh, what, what, what advantage there are or what disadvantages there are, I mean, I think, I think that people who have run for office, win or lose, uh, they understand how much work it takes. And we, we see all the time, you know, when some candidates will spend it a lot of time crafting their message and they'll just really get it perfect and they'll read the books and they'll study the laws and they'll say this is the we're gonna we're gonna move this comma over here and that'll fix everything um, and then next thing you know it's mid-october uh, and then we've seen other candidates who get really excited and they jump in there and they go all right i'm gonna hit my first door the day i file my paperwork and somebody looks them in the eye and says well what do you want to do and they you know they kind of stare Blankly, uh, I think that there's there's a way to, to balance out making sure you have your message and also making sure you get your message out there. All I've got really is the experiences that I've had trying to deal with my senators and my delegates. Mm-hmm. And I know as a potential candidate, I don't want to be like that because, as I said, I mean, we're business owners, operators, the biggest tax revenue provider in Greensville County and a lot of a lot of people we employ and my senator would not even have a meeting with me she sent me down the hall to meet with Janet Howell I went with with Scott Klepper who at the time was representing Pilot Flying J travel stores they have about 20 of them in the state of Virginia so as a group, we went down the hall to speak to Senator Howell's aide about setting up a meeting, and we're having a discussion. And finally, the the girl looking at the, the, the planner or aide says, "What what what issue are you wanting to discuss with Senator Howell?" And we said, "Skill games." And she said, "Oh, no, Senator Howell won't be taking any meetings on skill games. She views people within that industry as kind of sleazy." And Scott Klepper and I look at each other like, well, I guess we'll just take our sleazy asses on back out of the, you know. But you know what I what I was up against as a business owner trying to get my government. I'm not even gonna say to work for me, but to get my people to listen to what I was experiencing, I got completely shut out of. So you know, my my thing is, you got to be willing and able to listen to you know to people especially the people and i guess it's okay with you guys if i say this emporia greensville under louise lucas we've been underrepresented my area of virginia it's a diplomatic way to put it for years <laughs> i mean I'm, I'm just saying we've we've had nobody speaking she's been speaking for herself and what she wants and what she needs, not for people in Emporia and Greensville and Brunswick, who I have a, I have a business in Brunswick. I have businesses in a truck stop in Suffolk. I have businesses in Dinwiddie. You know, every every corner of this 17th district, 
I've got businesses there, which means I have employees there. I've got families there. So whether I run or not or whether I – I mean, I care about the policies and how they affect people in those districts, and we just haven't had anybody speaking up. So that's why this is important to me. It's intriguing to me, and I think it's an emergency-type situation because – our district, this, a lot of coverage area of this district has not been represented properly mm-hmm. in recent years. And this is an opportunity for us to get it right. Whoever that person ends up being, we can't afford to have moving forward what we've had moving backwards. You're fairly confident that that person is not Senator Lucas, is what you're saying. There's no, no way it can be Senator no Lucas. Way. By the way, I have the pilot Flying J app. Just so you'll know. There you go. And, you know, my my journey was very similar to that in South Hill. You know, the business owners were getting very, very frustrated with our town manager. We were getting very, very frustrated with just the general direction of the town and where the council wanted to go. So I started attending meetings for about three years before I started to run and started a nonprofit retail merchants association i did everything i could at a at a grassroots level to encourage change and very similar to what hermie was just talking about we had sitting council members that refused to meet with us and that was just on the local level and those things encouraged me to say okay i may not be the best guy but I'm better than that one, and I'm going to take a chance. And I'm better than that some bitch, you know. Well, it could have been something else, but we'll use some bitch. But you know, I, I may not be the best guy. Lifting, lifting from Senator Lucas's you know, vocabulary. I don't we? have, uh, I don't have the political experience. You know, I don't have the support of either political party. But I've got to take a chance and try to make a difference the frustrating part is once you get there your agenda can get lost in the vote because now it's not about what the issue is it's about who's bringing it up mm-hmm. and i just hope i hope Hermie. i mean we're all going to run into that but it is a very very frustrating well challenge. i'll make one other statement i got one other question and we'll start wrapping this thing up in emporia i've got the government telling me that they're going to take away a portion of my business and give it to Rosie's or give it to a casino because that's the way Janet Howell wants it or whatever the case may be. And I've got loggers and farmers and construction workers that are going out of business because inflation is going too fast for businesses of that size to absorb them. So what do I do? Do I sit on the sidelines and hope that somebody else fixes it? Or do I step up and try to help be part of the solution myself? My dad's always told me hope is not a good strategy. So I've relied on these other people for years. And they go from not answering or not caring to being incompetent in some in some ways. So I you know, I've got a choice and I can try to help or I can sit back and wait on somebody else to clean up some of this carnage that we're seeing in South South Virginia. And I can't afford, in my opinion, to uh, to make that mistake and depend on somebody else because they haven't done anything about it yet. But we were talking about school. 
candidate school. When I first transitioned from racing on the track in NASCAR to I'd already had a job with Fox. I signed a contract with Fox. But six months into my TV career, they called me in the production trailer one day at the racetrack and said, we got something we want to do for you, Mr. Saddle. I said, what's that? We're going to spend you, send you to speech therapy. I, remember that. I said, what? <laughs> he said, well, you know, you may not have noticed, but your accent's a little bit strong, and we're trying to reach people outside of Virginia. And I, I said, so you, they're going to send me to a speech therapy to clean up my accent so maybe other people. He said, you know, we got people outside of Emporia watching the races on Fox. And my answer to them was, look, after you fix Kenny Wallace and Larry McReynolds and all these other people that I know accent is way worse than mine, then I'll talk to you about it. <laughs> but it just made me think about if – I won't say me. I'll say if Shep wanted to sign up and go to your school mm-hmm. – what specifically do you would you try to teach Shep or point out to Shep about uh, make him a better candidate for even a local position? Great huh. question. Do we have about two hours? Um, we got two, two hours and no, forty-five minutes. No, no, no. Jeff no, Ryer no, is so no, into this. No, no. Yeah, it, go ahead. I'll, 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 I'll keep it. I'll keep it short, Jeff. Uh, so you got forty-five seconds. Okay, I'm gonna <laughs> go. That short. Well, I go a little over. This is for for our listeners too, who really are, may have the courage to want to yeah. run. This is the year and the next year to do it. These, these next two eighteen months are going to be absolutely critical. Yeah, and so so when we started the candidate training schools, we we really geared them very much at the local level because we felt that that's where a lot of resources hadn't been applied. So I'll tell you, this is this is more this answer is more geared at the local level. Um, you know, at we uh, constitutional officers, town, county, um, school board, board supervisor. So the the biggest question that we got from people is, and this is always well, maybe not the biggest one, but one of the one of the things we always uh, had people say is, you know, it was a, some variation of, you know, what's the change I need to make? Like, what what do I need to do uh, to myself, right? Or how do I make myself the the, the kind of candidate? We actually get that question a fair amount, and uh, it's it was kind of funny because it, first of all. You know they don't really know me from Adam, so I don't I don't know why they're asking me. But the but but really no, I mean the, the end of the day, we can we can give somebody the tools to say hey this is this is how you craft a message, but uh, but who you are that you know that's who the voters are going to see, that's that's the person that they're going to elect um, or or not elect. And frankly, I you know we've always we've always talked about this at the RPV a lot, which is you know one of the one of the best things that we see we saw it all all spring we saw it all last year is that there's there's something with our people that they are just so full of passion for change you see it coming out on the you know the floor in the house you see it at a rally in in chesterfield you can see it's it's palpable it's kind of thick in the air you get a lot of passion and we always tell candidates tap into that passion so if your if your biggest issue is that you think that every house in the town, the fence lines are three inches to the right because because the maps were drawn a little bit wrong. Roll with it because there may be a lot of people that agree with you. And if your if your biggest thing that is that you know the the uh, what the, the the town PD needs money for for a new uh, a new car, and if that that is the thing you are most passionate about, when you go talk to somebody about it, if you go talk to somebody about you know Biden's economy, 
you know, they're they're going to say, "Oh, that's nice." You know, I might agree with you. I might disagree with you. And you'll run into people that 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 care or don't care. But if you stand in front of somebody and some voter and you say, "This is the thing I care about the most. This is the one issue that is most important to me," and I've got six or seven others, but this is this is it, and they see your passion, they'll. First of all, they're probably likely to agree with you because if you're really steamed up about something, uh, like you said, especially at the town level, if you're really steamed up about something, chances are you're not the only person. But second of all, what they're gonna the the you know vote, voters are smart people. They're gonna look at you and say, "This is somebody who wants to make real change." And I do think fundamentally, those are the kind of people that that uh, get elected are the people who you know want to make real change. But one of the things that and. Maybe y'all can give me a quick reason why it's a bad idea, but one of my best friends, and, and Senator Stanley knows this too, my first real sponsor in NASCAR racing was Virginia's for Lovers, Virginia Tourism Corporation. Mm-hmm. I won Rookie of the Year in 1993, representing the Commonwealth of Virginia all across the NASCAR circuit. With Virginia is for Lovers, the tourism slogan on my car, George Allen was governor. We became friends then. I sent Bill messages last night that Governor Allen texted me little things and ideas and things. But one of the things that I said to him a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things I've always done, like when people come ask me to speak at a rotary function or at any other type of event, I'll get up and talk and speak. But then I always want people to ask questions, ask me questions. Sure. So that's one of the things I told governor Allen. He kind of laughed. He says, from what you see or the things you've done, what, what is one thing if you were campaigning or running or, 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 or on the campaign trail, you know, just show up at a rally, what would you do different than what you see on TV? I said, well, I'd get up and hit my points and talk, but I'd want to allow people an opportunity to ask me questions while I'm there. To listen. You know, you ask me something and, and uh, you know, I know that, but I never see that. So my question to you is when I watch rallies locally or at a state level event, or when I see stuff on TV, you very seldom see candidates or it doesn't have to be a candidate running for office. Anybody who's speaking to a group of people, they never give the audience, they want them to clap, but never give them a chance to actually ask a question of the person talking. Is there a chance or a possibility or is that a good idea to do that for somebody that may be trying to, to reach people? Yeah. I mean, I think I think I, I think that uh, a lot of times what you see on TV is uh, that part that they want to show on TV. And I think you know, Governor Youngkin's rallies or uh, rallies at the end or events that he did all throughout are a perfect example. I mean, there was you know there's all this fanfare, all these people, and they're holding signs and uh, and the, the crowd's cheering. But what I think a lot of people don't see is the before and after. You know, it's the that time spent talking. I mean, I, I remember when wading through the crowd. Exactly when we when we uh, right the the rally right after the um, the convention win. Uh, it was back in May uh, last year, and it was uh, I think it was held at uh, uh, was it I think the warehouse of Ball Office Products. I think is where mm-hmm. we held it. And um, and I, you know you you the the cameras captured this. You know lights go down and the music comes up and the flags are waving and. And that's what the, that's what people saw. But then, right after that, moving through the crowd, shaking people's hands, talking to everyone, um, and and I, you know it, it's tough sometimes at events. Uh, I've been to events with plenty of candidates. They feel 
a little bit rushed because there's so many people in the room. But, you know, even if you can hand somebody a business card and say, hey, look, I I want to hear from you. I want to hear what what you're thinking. Um, you know, let's let's get in touch at, at another time. And that's I do think there is a large part of uh, that political fanfare that you don't see. It's off TV. Bill, I know we got to wrap up, but I got one more question. Hold on, I want to. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. That. Oh, oh, I was wait, just going to say that um, a couple of the, the uh, Hermie and I were recently at um, a uh, fundraiser in uh, Chesterfield, uh, and uh, at that particular event, there were a few speakers and a public auction uh, that was designed to raise money. Uh, uh, but there was not a little lot of interaction. The following day, I went to a fundraiser in my home county that was a bit more casual. Uh, people were casually dressed, and the price was significantly lower. It was like thirty dollars a head or something like that, as opposed to a hundred plus. And uh, Congressman Whitman was the star speaker. Now, the night before, I'm at an event where Congressman Whitman is one of the speakers. He speaks briefly, um, and the next day, I'm at an event where Congressman Whitman is the main speaker. Took questions from the audience for the, you know, at a fundraiser, which isn't done very often. Uh, it, it just depends on the setting as to whether or not you get that level of interaction. And successful candidates, especially successful candidates at the local level, uh, encourage that sort of thing because they want that kind of interaction and feedback. Last year, when uh, now Governor Yunkin was on the campaign trail, uh, I went to a, a rally forum on the Eastern Shore, uh, obviously a very remote Part of Virginia that doesn't often see gubernatorial candidates, and uh, uh, after the rally portion was finished and the cameras all shut down, he stood there as just about everybody under the sun came over to him to ask him questions and make comments, and he listened to all of them. And I know because we were waiting for him to do something else, and we had to wait until that crowd waited through before we could uh, before we could get his attention. So yeah, it just hey, depends. You, yeah, it, that's a great point, but you just don't see a lot of that. You don't, you know. It, and the cameras I, turn off for that. They're looking for yeah. the sound bites, yeah. and they're, they're, that which is what cameras saying. But if I, in, in my view, if I can go around, I had a. This is some in some ways irrelevant, but in some ways relevant, maybe to building a grassroots campaign or or following. Uh, and Shep knows this guy, but I, I have a great friend. His name is Don Cox, country music singer, lives down in Bellhaven, North Carolina. And went to Nashville for a short period of time, 25 years ago. One of the most talented musicians I've ever seen. Guitar, piano, great singer, you name it. He went to Nashville. Didn't really like the that setting and being told what to do and how to play. So he came back home and just does his – and his 25 years later, he still plays little honky-tonk places, but at his own schedule, his own time. But you made a comment to me one time about him trying to build a – fan following in country music and we talked about you know people that he knew and i knew make me blake shelton was in my brother's wedding so you know he's got millions of fans and this and that but don told me years and years ago he said hermy uh, i play for hundreds of thousands of fans every year i just do it hundreds at a time <laughs> instead of thousands at a, a time concert yeah. so it made me you know i, I think about that more especially in the area that I live in, there's going to be events when there's 15, 20, 25 people. It may not always be 500 or 1,000, but those events, if those 50 people say, hey, this guy came and told us what he stands for, what he wanted to try to do, but also he let us 
interact interact and give concerns and ask questions and, and maybe they tell the next town and the sure. next kind of thing and so I, I believe I believe especially I think one thing we can all agree on at this table is we all we all think that candidates especially the Democrats we've talked about haven't always gone to try to reach out to people at the grassroots level in these kind of areas so you, some way that's a could be an advantage for you. Have to, I think you have to attack those. Shep, you get the second and last word. All right. What do you do? What do you suggest? Not only while you're campaigning, but once you get elected, how do you handle negative press that may be warranted and or not warranted? You know, sometimes you're going to get Jeff hit Ryan negatively. Question, if I've ever heard one. Sometimes, sometimes I will get hit negatively for being right sometimes i get hit negative because i'm wrong and maybe i deserve that criticism how do you handle how do you recommend handling that as an elected as a candidate and or an official you have to be forthright and you have to have the um you, you really have to have the confidence of your own convictions that you know you're able to articulate and explain why you're voting the way you did and why it makes the most sense and why it's best for the constituency as a whole. And that really is what you're looking for. And by the way, just because I know we're getting ready to wrap up, I want to be clear about this. If you ever do decide to take elocution lessons, Hermie, record those for a podcast because I got to tell you, that would <laughs> <coughs> that would oh, really we've had some of them be, here, actually, be fun uh, to listen we to. We had Joe Camerata from uh, New Jersey, New York. And uh, we were, I'd have him say a word, and then I'd have Hermie say the word. And um, Hermie said learned, it 10 more minutes to this podcast. Yeah, Hermie, just, Hermie, learned, Hermie, how do you say the word pen? I'm not playing along with okay, you. Okay, fine. Again. All right, so it was pretty funny. So go back to one of our own podcasts. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, but no. Uh, but that really is the key, and that's the key for just about uh, anything you're doing uh, in the political world. It's, you've got to have uh, – you have to have a core and a set of core beliefs uh, because that's what needs to drive the decision-making process that you make. And then a lot of times the decisions that you make aren't necessarily unexpected by people. And uh, there is a, a certain value, and I think a pretty great one, uh, to candidates that uh, do what they say they're going to do and stand where people expect them to stand. Even sometimes when they disagree with you, they'll respect you they'll respect you and they'll say you know what I, he may be wrong on this one but he agrees with me on this and this and this and this and this and that's what I'm gonna I'm gonna go with I just learned a new word elocution elocution <laughs> I don't know if he said electrician execute it I'm gonna pass it on to Bill to close out but I want us to say first of all thank y'all for coming and being a part of the podcast Absolutely. and thank y'all for what y'all are doing for the Republican Party we've all been through our own share of of issues that have been created by this democratic uh, control that we've had in Virginia. And I just want to, the Republican party has an opportunity now that everybody has worked on and worked hard and suffered through to get to this point. And I just hope this November, next November and all day, every day in between that everybody in the party unites together and, continues to, to to put the message out because I do really think that people are starting to to pay attention and to realize that 
you know, that um, how quickly things can get turned around in a negative way if we let it. And so I hope we can uh, keep the momentum going. And thank you both again for spending some time with us. And, Herman, you're right. We're at an emergency state. Yeah. yeah. Thank, this thanks. is it. Thanks for inviting us, and yeah. thanks for providing us with all this fabulous swag. I mean, I've got a Stanley Law Firm magnet. I have a Stanley Law Group uh, sticker, which is quite small, so isn't legible from any more than 10 feet away. <laughs> and on. I have right. an, an NCI, uh, NCI mug uh, from the uh, New College Institute. Suitable for coffee or yeah. the, uh, a cocktail. Yeah. The Stanley Law Group merch mm-hmm. is worth nothing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but the good news is – if you get him to autograph it, it's worth less. <laughs> well, I'll, that's, a, that's a point. I, well, I'll, keep, nice. I'll keep my stuff. I'll keep my stuff. Nice. I, I would leave everybody with one piece of advice that actually Jeff Ryard told me when I was running for something. I say, what do I, what do I say to these people? And he said three things. And I tell every candidate that if you're going to make a speech, it is you, because you may have only have two minutes or five minutes, as Jeff Ryard said. Three things. Who am I? Which is a brief summary of your life. What do I stand for, which helps you identify with the person who's listening? And if you elect me, what will I do for you? And then he also said, never lie. Always tell the truth. Even if you blew it, just say I blew it. I made a mistake because the lying is the worst thing. And quite frankly, if all politicians would have done that uh, or would do that, then they'd be better. And you know what? It works. It's great. I don't have to worry about a thing. I always tell the truth. And that's when it comes to politics and everything else. It's one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got. If you're interested in running for office, contact RPV. Uh, Ken, you've been wonderful. We really appreciate you. Ken Nunnenkamp, they can call you, I'm sure, and, and you can send them to the right uh, boot camp for candidates. Absolutely. Okay. And, and you know, if you want to do it, hopefully this has gotten you uh, motivated. Have the courage. Step forward. We need people out there uh, that have never run for anything before but that can make a difference and truly believe that with the courage that they possess. So I want to thank uh, Ken Nunnenkamp for coming, executive director of the RPV, Jeff Ryer, my old friend, communications director for the Senate Republican Caucus, and second district chairman? First. First district first, chairman. America's first district. America's first district in the Republican Party of Virginia. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for everything that you do, as Hermie said, and thank you for the advice. Hopefully this has helped motivate someone to run for office where we can make a difference and take back the House, the Senate. You have 24 regular listeners, right? So uh-huh, I knew that was coming. Okay. No. I'm just checking. Hundreds of thousands. Thank hundreds you. of thousands? Yes. Just, just hundreds at the time. Yes. yes. Hundreds at the time. Oh, and at, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Texas Tavern Theory. I love it. No, that's the Hermes Adler. <laughs> yeah, I know. It works good. So uh, thank you again. Uh, it's been a very informative uh, podcast. Sometimes our podcasts are a lot of laughs and not a lot of information. This was a lot more information, not so many laughs. But uh, oh. I'm Virginia State Senator Bill Stanley, and I'm leaning right. And I'm former NASCAR driver Hermie Sadler, and I'm turning left. This has been another edition of Leaning Right and Turning Left with Sadler and the Senator, powered by Pacematic. And make sure you check us out on Facebook, Sadler uh, and the Senator uh, podcast, Leaning Right, Turning Left. We have a Facebook page. Find us on SadlerStanleyRacing.com. That's our webpage. And you can find this uh, podcast on all podcast platforms, all the major ones. Make sure you give us a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. God bless you all.